from lovely Maple Grove, Minnesota and SixFootMama.com. This is Still Growing with Jennifer Ebling. Still Growing is a gardening podcast dedicated to helping you and your garden grow. Hi there, everyone, and welcome to Still Growing, and thank you for listening. I'm your host, Jennifer Ebling. Today's show is a dream come true for me. Leslie Buck is on the show, and she's the author of Cutting Back, My Apprenticeship in the Gardens of Kyoto. Cutting Back is Leslie's charming memoir of her time spent in the gardens of Kyoto, Japan. Now, I read about Leslie and her memoir last year when she was featured in the Washington Post in an article by Adrian Higgins titled, A Gardener Went to Japan to Polish Her Pruning Skills, and She Found Tough Love. I was so intrigued by this article that I featured Leslie's book in the shopping segment of the Garden News Roundup in an episode last year, and then I was absolutely thrilled when Leslie accepted an invitation to be a guest on the podcast. A California garden designer and an aesthetic pruner trained by Japanese-American mentors in California, Leslie became the first American woman to learn pruning from one of the very best at Ueto Zoen, one of the oldest and most venerable landscape companies in Kyoto. In her book, Leslie shares the revelations she had during her time working on a pruning-only crew of this centuries-old garden company. In Japan, Leslie found not only tough love, but also resilience and pride, along with a refinement of the skills required to create truly exquisite results in the garden. If you love listening to garden adventures and garden stories, this episode with Leslie is perfect for you. Apprenticeship in the Gardens of Kyoto with Leslie Buck. That's the topic of today's show, and it's coming up after an update on the listener community for the show and this week's Garden News Roundup. Well, welcome to the Still Growing Podcast, and thank you for listening. You know, I always start the show out by saying that I hope you listen to a lot of different gardening podcasts, gardening audio, because it's such a great way to learn and grow as a gardener, especially this time of year. Someone posted in our listener community that there's only 40 days till spring, and so we're officially in countdown mode. I know the excitement's already starting. Seed catalogs are already dog-eared and orders are on their way if they haven't already arrived. Those seed trays are coming out and the grow lights, all the fun is just beginning. But while you're waiting for all of the action to get started, podcasts are great because you can get that gardening fix. You can increase your skills and your own gardening knowledge and hopefully translate that into a better gardening experience for you. You know, the listening tip that I have for you today came about by happenstance. I've been following Nikki Kyle Garden on Twitter. I love their posts. They shared something earlier this week or late last week, and it had to do with what to sow in February. I loved that post. And they shared something earlier today that ended up leading me over to their website. 
And that's how I found this lead on a new little audio series for you that's called Tunnel to Table. It's the From Tunnel to Table audio series that's on the Nikki Kyle Garden website. And when I shared it on Twitter today, I said, go check out the From Tunnel to Table audio series on the Nikki Kyle Garden website, close Twitter, and go listen. I think this is actually a series that they do on a local radio station, and then the audio is there for you to check out on their website. And I think it's available on SoundCloud as well. But if you're looking for new content, these guys have a pretty extensive library, and they've done very nice work. So go check it out. That's my tip for you this week. I'd also like to invite you to join the listener community for the show. There's a Facebook group for the Still Growing Podcast. And all you have to do to join is the next time you're in Facebook, just go on up to the search bar and type in Still Growing Podcast Group. And then the group will show up. You click to join. You're in the group. And you can share pictures of your garden. You can interact with other listeners of the show. And you get access to all of the posts, the articles, the the behind-the-scenes information that I share, and it's all designed to help you and your garden grow. Now, the Facebook group is the only place I go to pick lucky listeners for my show giveaways. Last week's guest was Megan Kane, and we were talking about her new Smart Start Garden Planner, and we have a winner. It's Susan Ducey. So Susan, congratulations. You'll be getting a copy of Megan's Smart Start Garden Planner. Just go ahead and private message me your contact information, email, and physical address. That's all we need. And Megan will make sure a copy gets sent to you right away. So congratulations, Susan. Now, another benefit of joining the Facebook group is that most of the guests that have been on the show are in the group, and that was my hope when I created the group. I wanted a place where listeners of the show and guests of the show could continue the conversation, where you could get your questions asked. So if I don't ask something during the interview with the guest, you can now ask your question directly to the guest. So don't be afraid to reach out. They love to hear from you guys. And if you enjoyed the episode, you can just give them a shout out and say thanks for the information and the encouragement. That's always appreciated. Anyway, speaking of the group, it's time to welcome new members. I'm trying to play catch up here. This week, I welcome Carol Lee, Jody Tiffany Donnelly, Erica Allen, Sean Gardner, Rebecca Conrad, Susie Dunsmore-Reeser, Shelly Lynn, Kimmy in Florida, and Lan Wynn. Welcome, you guys. Don't forget that the show also has a phone number, so if you want to reach out with your questions, suggestions, comments, and feedback, you can do that quite easily. Just call 865-333-GROW or 865-333-4769. All right, now it's time for the Garden News Roundup. This is a curated group of posts and articles that I've shared over the past week with the listener community in the free Facebook group, the Still Growing Podcast group. We just talked about it. Now, this is made up of a dozen different segments. And what's nice about it for you is that you get to stay pretty up to speed in what's going on in the world of horticulture and gardening just by listening to this part of the show each week. And you can easily check out all of these articles and posts for yourself because it all gets shared in the free Facebook group, in the listener community. So you don't need to take notes. You don't need to try to track down a link. 
If you hear something and you want to read the full article, just head on over to the group and join. In the guest update segment, Jen McGinnis of the blog Frau Zinni shared an updated gardener's calendar for the month of February. Jen's been compiling her garden chores calendar for a number of years now, and it just continues to get better and better and more refined with each passing year. So go ahead and check that out if you're trying to get your list together of things you should be doing right now to get ready for your garden 2018. In sustainability, listener Kathy Martin Oleg had shared a question in the Still Growing podcast group. She asked about her backyard grass. She said, my backyard took a bit of a beating over the winter from my greyhound using the yard as a track. I'd love to see that. Any ideas for some super tough ground cover that I can put up in the beat up places? Now, in response to this question, I drew a cue from the Minnesota Landscape Arboretum. They have their wonderful new bee lab and their bee center for the bee squad. And one of the things that I noticed when I was taking a tour there is how they're incorporating the use of clover into their lawns because, of course, clover is such a wonderful plant for bees. So after I suggested clover, which I could hardly believe I was suggesting, but I have to say, I'm seeing it more and more. I went on over to the Minnesota Landscape Arboretum website, and I checked to see if they had any recommendations. And sure enough, over at the Bee Lab, they had this wonderful PDF called Flowering Bee Lawns for Pollinators. This is a nice-sized document talking about how you can incorporate pollinator plants and create your own flowering lawn and help out the bees. So if you're interested, when you're in the listener community, when you're in that Facebook group, just head on over to the search bar and type in grass, and you'll see this post pop right up. Nice little handout from the University of Minnesota there. In continuing ed, Nikki Kyle Gardening had a really good post. I think this is the one that had drawn me originally to their audio series, and it was the vegetable garden in February 2018. Now, one of the most adorable little things that I saw in this post is they had a kitchen stepladder, and they were using it as a holder for little flats of greens, and she called it her stepladder garden. And I'm telling you, this thing just completely stole my heart. I can't get it out of my mind. I want to try to find a cute little vintage stepladder now that I can do the same thing with. I just fell in love with it. But in general, I love the content here. And I really like, too, just kind of the tone of their advice. I like that this post with regard to February started out by talking about resilience, especially when it comes to being an organic gardener. So I think their whole philosophy is very positive and encouraging and very down-to-earth, and all of that appeals to me. So check them out, NikkiKyleGardening.com. Also in continuing ed, Modern Farmer had a great article about essential oils. They answer some basic questions, then they also had some fun facts, such as, did you know it takes 4,000 pounds of rose petals to produce one pound of rose essential oil? So think about that the next time that you're getting some type of rose essential oil. That's a lot of rose petals. And then compare that to lavender flowers. You only need 150 lavender flowers to produce a pound of lavender 
lavender oil. So if you have to choose between the lavender oil and the rose petal oil, and they're both the same price, you better believe I'm going to be grabbing that rose oil. I'm going to look at it a lot more appreciatively now that I know that little tidbit. Also in Continuing Ed, there was a post that I found, actually it was last March, and I've been meaning to share it ever since. But this was shared in theguardian.com, and it was, have a garden design dilemma? Here are five expert tips. So what I liked about this, and I think why I waited to share it, is because it's such a good beginning of the season article to read especially for design. And February and March are such a great time to spend dreaming and designing and planning what you want to do in your garden. So here are some of the key questions that they answer. Where do I begin? Has my decking been overdone? What do I do if my plants prefer to grow in the path? My plants would be in that club. What if you don't have gardening space? What do you do if your garden is a car park? And then finally, what do you do if you have no soil at all, just paving? So this would be tips for container gardening. Anyway, lots of great tips in this article. Something great to read for this time of year when we're all thinking about planning and envisioning our 2018 gardens. In the how-to DIY segment, here's another great post from Modern Farmer, and it's how to prune your fruit trees. Of course, this is the time of year when you want to get out there and prune your fruit trees. And of course, I'm saying this with a little bit of a chuckle because listener Patricia Chandler Newport over in Detroit just shared an image of her garden. She got another, I think, foot of snow. And I can relate. We have been there. We don't have that much snow in Minnesota right now. But I tell you what, it is tough sometimes when you live in a cold climate to get out there and prune trees when it's so cold and there's so much snow. But now is really the time to strike. Now, this article by modernfarmer.com walks you through it in three simple steps. And I'll give you the cliff notes on that, and then you can go back and read this article. Just type in fruit tree in the search bar. This will pop up. In any case, step one is cleanup. That's easy. Any of us can do that. You head out to the fruit tree. You take a look at it. If you've got a broken limb, something that looks dead, you've got something that's just damaged or diseased, chop that baby off, tidy that up. That's a quick win. Step two is thinning it out. I always think of my brother when I think of step two because my brother bought a house about a couple of years ago and right in the front of the house, right in front of their dining room window, as a matter of fact, is this apple tree that's completely out of control. I don't think it was ever pruned. And every time I see this tree, every time I visit my brother, I say, thin that tree out. Go crazy on it. You can have a lot of fun thinning out your fruit trees, especially if they haven't been pruned before. You're going to have to stand back and kind of judge what branches you think need to go first. Some of them are obvious. They're pointed a strange direction or they're going downward or they're crossing each other. Those are quick wins. But thinning out those fruit trees is just part of the ownership, part of the joy of having a fruit tree. And then finally, the last step, they call it head back. I think of it as a haircut. All you're going to do here is give all of that new growth a haircut. You're going to give the tree an overall haircut. Look at that outermost growth. Take it down a bit. Imagine that the tree has a perm and you need to take it all back just a little bit because then you'll get a shorter, thicker branch profile instead of long and gangly. So yay, there you go, your three steps. 
All right. Also in the how-to DIY segment, there was an article by finegardening.com. This is a favorite of mine. It's all about forcing branches. So your amaryllis is probably blooming. Maybe it's on its last legs, maybe not. But if you're looking for that pop of color and you don't have a lot of spring bulbs yet or those grow baskets that you can buy at the grocery store at the nursery, you can go out into your yard and you can grab a cutting of magnolia or a cutting of forsythia and bring that in and force those branches and just be a wash in beautiful color and bloom. Now, that's something that gets me really excited in spring. Okay, last but not least in the how-to DIY segment is a post from That Bloomin' Garden. I love the name of that blog. It's by Kristen Crouch. And Kristen did a great job of creating this very nice blog post for first-timers, and it's called Starting Your Seeds for the First Time. This is a great post. Very comprehensive, very reassuring, and just like with NikkiKyleGarden.com, Kristen's tone and information is on point. So check that out. It's called ThatBloominGarden.com, and Bloomin is B-L-O-O-M-I-N. They just took the G off there, and it's just so stinking cute, or I should say so stinking cute. Anyway, check out that blog by Kristen. You can start as one of your favorites. She's got lots of information there. Okay, in the plant spotlight this week, the Chicago Botanic Garden wrote a very nice post about conifers and how they light up the winter garden. Now, this post is a couple of years old, but conifers are conifers. They don't change from year to year. And the pictures that they took about how the conifers really lighten the winter landscape is such a great concept to tuck away, especially if you're looking out on your winter landscape and feeling that it's a little drab, a little meh. So check that out. Draw some inspiration. And maybe when the ground thaws, it's time to plant a few conifers in your garden this year. That might be very inspiring for you. In the news this week, the Yale 360 website shared a very interesting article, and it was about Napa Valley. Apparently, people are at odds about the land there. The vineyards, of course, want to expand. But conservationists are concerned about conserving the hills, conserving that land, and not turning everything into a vineyard. This was an article written by Alastair Bland. I was not aware of this issue, and it reminds me a little bit of trying to choose your favorite child. It's an impossible thing. Of course, we'd love to have more vineyard. I'd love to have a vineyard. I can see where vineyards would want to expand. And at the same time, you only have so much land, and those hills are precious too. So read up on that. That was a great article. Also in the news, the National Geographic posted kind of a salaciously titled headline. It was called Butterflies Behaving Badly, What They Don't Want You to Know. And what I discovered when I looked at this article is that there are some poisonous butterflies. There are some butterflies that are fighters. There are some caterpillars that are cannibals. Apparently, they also drink turtle tears. Who knew? Kind of a nifty little fact there. 
But what I really liked about this particular article is that they share this really wonderful butterfly poem and a very cool video. So if you're into butterflies, you'll love this article. You got to check that out. Gardens Illustrated shared a fun post that made the news segment this week, and it was called Why Plant Lovers Should Visit Scotland. Now, you might be thinking, well, why should they? And it's primarily because in the spring, they have a spectacular display of snowdrops and uncommon trees. Now, there are a number of choice snowdrops or galanthus in Scotland, and there are many beautiful castles and estates that incorporate all kinds of snowdrops. And they are thrilled to live there because they are sheltered under these mature trees and shrubs that dot these estates. But if you're a big galanthus lover, you're called a galanthophile. And so when I shared this in the group, I said, here's why galanthophiles should plan a trip to Scotland. Plus, bonus, you can call yourself a galanthophile. So there's that. Now, if you do plan a trip to Scotland, you might as well stop in England in fact, if you head over right now, you can see Kew Gardens Stunning Orchid Festival. And this year, there is a Thai theme. So I shared an article that reviews this year's wonderful Orchid Festival. The reviews say it's lean and green, and it has every color you've ever seen. The pictures just probably don't do it justice, but it's extremely vibrant photography and images coming out of the Orchid Festival at Kew Garden. All right, in science this week, there was a great article that was just published by the Washington Post, and it has to do with an effort to save the redwoods, the giant redwood trees in California. And what they're doing in order to learn how to save them is they're mapping their DNA, they're mapping their genome. When I read this article, I was reminded that author John Steinbeck referred to the Redwoods as ambassadors from another time. I love that. And I also thought it was very interesting to learn that they have a very complicated genome to map. In fact, they estimate that it will take them three years to complete this project. And when they're finally done, when they've wrapped up the entire thing, they'll have a big enough sample size to determine the trees that have the characteristics necessary in order to withstand moisture or drought, crazy temperature swings in the environment, basically just to withstand harsh conditions, whatever nature can throw at it. So that's exciting. Also in science, there was a fascinating article about pistachio trees and why they all drop their pistachios at the same time. Turns out there is a model that is used to explain magnetism, and the same principle applies to pistachios. When one tree starts dropping pistachios, the other trees notice that, and they follow suit. Finally, in science, there was an article out of nature.com. It was called The Sweet and Sour Story of Citrus. Now, what I would have called it is The Citrus Family Tree, A Sour Story of Sweet Beginnings. That would have been the title that I used because essentially what this article is about is that they've done a lot of DNA work on citrus already, and they've figured out 
that whether you're talking about oranges or lemons, citrus traces its roots to the southeast foothills of the Himalaya. They're all one big happy family. So this was a very short but sweet article, and I kept thinking of it as kind of an Ancestry.com for citrus. All right, before I get into the shopping segment for this week, a little backstory here. John came down with the flu, my youngest, right before the Super Bowl last Sunday, and we have spent the entire week sequestered in the basement to keep all the other kids away from him and hopefully try to get this thing under control. So we were down there. He had the flu. By Tuesday, he had strep. It's been kind of a long week. So with that said, let's talk about shopping. What I picked for the shopping segment is a direct result of the fact that I had sequestered myself in the basement with John all week long, and we discovered the show Fixer Upper. So we were watching every single episode that we could get our hands on of Fixer Upper, and the minute the show would start, John would say, oh, we need to do all hardwood floors. We need to do French doors. We need to do floor-to-ceiling windows. Anyway, I love that kid, but I was kind of surprised that A 12-year-old could pick up on the design trends just by watching a handful of episodes. He was really Johnny on the spot there, no pun intended. But one of the things that I noticed, especially as the episodes went on, is that houseplants are featured prominently in most of their home reveals. And it turns out Joanna loves houseplants. She calls herself a crazy plant lady. And so when I was subscribing to her website because I wanted to check out some of these homes, especially the one she did for her sister, I loved all the houseplants in that particular episode. In any case, I found out when I went to her website that you can find, if you just type in Magnolia, there's a plant stand that I really, 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 really want. And now's the time of year to get it because I'm still in houseplant mode, like full-on houseplant mode. And it's called the Olivia Plant Stand. So what it looks like is it's a plant stand. Imagine imagine you just have a long stand, a base, just a single pipe that's on a stand, kind of like a music stand coming up off the floor. And then you just have a simple circle. And at the top of the circle is a hook. And the plant hangs within the circle. That's the look. And so you get this wonderful outline of a circle or a sphere that's going around the plant. Think of it as a halo that goes around a hanging plant. That's what that circle ends up looking like. I just fell in love with this design. Now, I don't know if I'm going to get it because it's $113. But I really, really want one. You can get a short or a tall. You can get it in black or you can get it in brass. I think it's a splurge. But hey, if you have a birthday and Mother's Day, maybe you can squish them together and your hundred children can all split the cost. I don't know. Anyway, I like it. But if that doesn't catch your fancy, there are plenty of other things on this page of her website that you can click on and look at. Just some fun containers for your house plants. And they're not all that expensive. I think that's the most expensive thing on this page, as a matter of fact. So don't get discouraged. Don't let that throw you. Just go check out Magnolia the next time you're online. All right. In inspiration this week... Birds and Blooms shared a fun video, actually five videos, 
There are five hummingbird videos in this one post that they shared, and they're very incredible. So they've got hummingbirds in slow motion. They've got hummingbirds with their teeny tiny little nests. My parents got to see a hummingbird nest on their property last year right in their front tree. They could watch it from their bay window. Such a fun experience for them. But these five videos were very, very sweet. Check those out. Okay, finally, in the quotable segment this week, I chose some quotes that have to do with pruning. The first is from Viscountess Wolseley, Gardens, Their Form and Design, 1919. Each tree should have the same cared-for appearance that a well-groomed horse presents in the satin shine of his coat. Sounds like something a Viscountess would say. Here's a quote from Mirabelle Osler in The Eye of the Garden, 1993. With cerebral application, the French amputate their plants to the bare bones, born with the automation set to prune. This one's from Anne Lovejoy from Gardening from Scratch, 1998. It's easy to be cavalier about clearing when chainsaw fever strikes, but oops won't replace a tree mistakenly felled in haste. Hmm. Oops. <laughs> this one's a good one. It's from Richardson Wright, Another Gardener's Bed Book, 1933. Lest you wish you never married him, Refrain from speaking to a husband when he is in the midst of pruning a climbing rose. An hour among the thorns gives even the meekest man a thirst for blood. It boils his wrath up near the surface. The canny wife, finding him in this disposition, will set a long, cool drink nearby and go away quickly. <laughs> oh, I'm cracking myself up here. Oh, here's a good one from William Robinson, a garden designer who lived from 1838 to 1935. Nothing is more miserable for the gardener or uglier in the landscape than a garden laid out with clipped yews. Without naming the most grotesque examples of the mutilation in England, it is clear that much beauty is lost in our gardens by the stupid and ignorant practice of cutting trees into unnatural shapes. Hmm, strong opinions there. Here's one that I think Leslie could agree with. It's from Cass Turnbull, founder of Plant Amnesty, Seattle, an organization dedicated to teaching people how to prune their trees and shrubs correctly, quoted in Horticulture, August 1990. Good pruning is invisible. It looks as if everything grew to the right size and stopped. 
Well, that's the Garden News Roundup for this week's show. Just a reminder, you can get all of these posts with links and bonus content in your Facebook feed if you join the listener community in the free Facebook group, the Still Growing Podcast Group. I'd love to meet you in the group. With that, let's transition to the topic of today's show, Apprenticeship in the Gardens of Kyoto with Leslie Buck. Imagine being so fascinated by the ancient Japanese art of pruning that you drop everything, put your entire life on hold, and fly to the one place on earth where pruning mastery is practiced every single day, Japan. Now imagine doing this with only a handful of connections and a whole lot of hope, praying that you'll manage to secure some sort of apprenticeship opportunity to help you refine your pruning skills. By the way, now imagine doing that back in 1999 without a smartphone. I know, it wasn't that long ago, but it was a very different time. That's exactly what Leslie did. In 1999, Leslie was a 35-year-old professional gardener. She owned her own landscaping business. She had worked with a few Japanese-Americans and attended conferences to get better at pruning. But she was very serious about pursuing the craft of pruning. So she bravely followed her heart to Kyoto, where she hoped to sharpen her pruning skills and kindle her love for Japanese culture. During today's chat, Leslie will read excerpts from many of my favorite parts in the book, and she'll also share design elements, pruning methods, and interesting traditional tools that she used during her time in Japan. Now, there are a few things that I'd like to draw your attention to in this episode. First, the natural beauty of native plants. Leslie talks about how we can sometimes misinterpret what Japanese gardens are all about. We shouldn't be trying to recreate a Kyoto garden smack dab in the middle of wherever we happen to be on planet Earth. Instead, we should draw inspiration from our own forests and use our own native plants. Leslie describes her own garden as being inspired by California campgrounds. It's very natural looking. Second, the importance of attuning to our gardens. Leslie poses many thought-provoking questions and insights in her book. In today's episode, you'll hear her talk about pruning not to make a tree more beautiful, but to draw out the natural beauty already existing in the tree, even if that means accentuating a dead branch. Shocking, right? Leslie shares what a garden desires most, which is to be desired and loved. And one of the things she tells her clients is to go and get a comfy garden couch to start that love affair with the garden. So now we have our marching orders for our 2018 garden shopping list. Find a comfy garden couch stat. Finally, attention to detail. There's attention to detail, and then there's attention to detail. What I'm hoping you'll take away from this is a desire to work a little harder 
on your focal points or the special plants or features of your garden. My daughter naturally does this. All of the kids have helped me in the garden, but my daughter Emma is apparently very Japanese in her approach. From the time she was very little, I learned that I couldn't give Emma big jobs in the garden. That would overwhelm her and she'd lose interest. But ask her to focus on a two-foot square area? She was golden. And I remember one time she cleaned debris out of a little strip of garden by my stream And it was immaculate when she was done. I loved it. But I was more focused on the remaining 12 feet that were left to deal with. And I was unimpressed with how long it took her to get that little patch of garden to look so good. Well, guess what? I'm revising my assessment of that. And I'm excited to take a cue from Emma and Leslie, and the craftsmen of Japan, and spend a little more time giving a little more attention to the focal points in my garden. And I'm looking forward to just being with Emma side by side, paying meticulous attention in the garden. So those are the three main points I'd like you to pay attention to in this episode, the natural beauty of native plants, the importance of attuning to our gardens, and attention to detail. There's a point in the interview where Leslie and I talk about how to make a garden shine. Leslie says, a garden, it has to be loved. As a pruner, I know how to look at a plant and say, here are the problems. But sometimes I have to step back and say, hey, what's beautiful about this? That's why I step back and remind myself from time to time, I have to praise my garden. I really liked that. In fact, I especially enjoyed listening to the way Leslie talks about gardens because that's where she shines. It's time to take a little trip back to Japan, courtesy of Leslie Buck and her memoir, Cutting Back, My Apprenticeship in the Gardens of Kyoto. Well, hi there, Leslie. Welcome to the Still Growing Podcast. Hi, Jennifer. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Well, my pleasure. I remember reading about your book in the Washington Post. So this is a little bit of a dream come true for me that we actually get to talk today. I wanted to start out right at the beginning of your book. You describe a scene where you're pruning a tree and you've climbed up into the tree and you've laid your rake across the sidewalk to warn people away from any falling branches. And you wrote... Just as I covet the stylish outfits worn by women who walk beneath my tree, I believe others want to be like me, to be a kid again, up in the tree with me. I'd love to have you read those first two paragraphs to us, and I thought you had a killer opening line, which I will forever associate with your book, because it starts out, I am the person you spot up in the tree. Yeah, um, this story that I'm about to read, it does happen quite a bit, and I'm sure some of your listeners who are gardeners will relate to it. Here's the reading. I am the person you spot up in the tree, dirt smeared, 
across my face. Is that a large bird up there? You may wonder. My pruning shears busily clip away as I try to bring out the natural beauty in the tree in my playful, sometimes assertive, sometimes delicate way. The tree, shears, and I are dancing partners under the sun. We've been together for decades. Passerby might step over my pile despite the rake I have laid across the sidewalk as a deterrent. Often without asking, they'll pick up a branch for their dog and walk on, hoping not to bother me. Or maybe I'll catch their eye as they walk under a branch I'm sawing that is about to drop. People are curious about the female pruner high up in the tree, wielding sharp tools. Just as I covet the stylish outfits worn by the women who walk beneath my tree, I believe others want to be a kid again up in the tree with me. <laughs> um, every Friday for seven years, I would go to a cafe and write stories for at least four hours. That was my deal, starting at one o'clock. And um, what came out of it was these stories about my journey from California to Japan when I was in search of seeing if I could train with traditional garden craftsmen. And I had thought that I wanted to, to look at these stories. and. As time passed, you know, I thought, maybe I'm going to start repeating myself. And what I found was there was so much more to the story than I realized when I was there. And new um, lessons and morals and ethics kept coming out up to the very end. Like every chapter, there was something new I was learning and I, I just, I couldn't believe it until I rewrote it. I wasn't sure how people would respond to my writing and I just said, I'm going to try and get it published, but if it doesn't work, I'm just going to make a couple copies and have it for, you know, my future relatives and friends and um, call it a day and start something new. But because I was, I was so satisfied with the process of the writing. It felt like I was traveling for those seven intensive years and that I was there and just having that time to ruminate was so amazing. So I just always, you know, try and encourage people, keep small journals or even Facebook might be a good way for us to remember what's happening in our lives and just take that time to ruminate, to think about our past is it's quite lovely and then at a certain point people said well the stories are good but it's not quite told well enough because you know I'm not a natural writer I'm a gardener um so I went out and I got some I took a few classes and I got some expert advice and by that time it was almost like when I learned how to prune you know you just have to prune and prune and prune that's what I do for a living is, you know, very naturalized pruning and gardening. And then when you have a question after you've done it a while, you can really understand the response. And that's what happened um, after I'd written all those years. It was time for me to get expert advice from a writing craftsperson. 
and they help take my all my stories and bring it into a journey with purpose that became um, my memoir, Cutting Back My Apprenticeship in the Gardens of Kyoto. So the story was really like my process. It was a process of cutting back. At the time you went to Kyoto, that in and of itself was a gift. But then all these years later, writing the book, it was like you got to go back and get that gift again, except now you had all of this benefit of all of your life experiences and the wisdom you had acquired, and you could look back and see it through fresh eyes. Oh, yeah. I think that I waited many years to start writing these stories. It helped bring more into the writing because I learned a lot more about Japanese garden design once I came back and more about pruning. And I had experiences in the gardens I work in in California. And I could put all that into the book. So I always say it doesn't matter how long ago, you know, one's experienced something, you know, an event that was powerful in their life. But it's almost more interesting to bring in that, like you say, that wisdom. No question. My first introduction to your book was that Washington Post article that I mentioned earlier, and it had this beautiful, large picture of you, and you're pruning (laughs) a Japanese maple at a client's home in Berkeley, California. It's very striking. I mean, it immediately captured my attention. You're in this tree, you're barefoot, and yet you look relaxed, you look confident, you're totally in your element. And then I have to ask, too, do you always prune barefoot? (laughs) I get that question a lot. (laughs) Well, um, luckily, I have a very good friend, Maya Bloom, who's a professional photographer. And she took this photo. And I don't normally prune barefoot. (laughs) And also, I don't always look that good Um, when I'm gardening. I'm usually a little more dirty. And I am wearing clunky shoes. But doesn't doesn't a girl get to have her one chance just to look good in the garden? Oh. I mean, I deserve it after all these years. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, but when I you know, when I thought about it, I decided to take my shoes off. I said, Let's do it. And you know, that's how I feel when I'm in the garden. It's when we're barefoot, we're more vulnerable. And I teach pruning and I tell my students, you know, we're not the makers of beauty of these trees. We're not pruning them and making them look beautiful. We're the assistants and we're here to work with the tree. And there's a beauty in there in any tree. Sometimes it's just been so poorly pruned. It's, as my mentor would say, the big ugly to the little ugly is all you can do. But mostly, even, you know, The most rough-looking tree, when you work on it and you tend it, this beauty comes out. So that's what I do is I'm the assistant. I encourage this natural beauty to reveal itself over the years, over time, like raising raising a child, but gently. I think you have such an interesting perspective and relationship with the natural world. It's very unique. It comes through in your voice and how you speak about the natural world, but also in the way that 
you imagine the natural world wants us to hear what it's saying. I know we're going to talk about this a little bit later, so I don't want to spoil that part of our interview. But another thing that you said in your book, and it's the perfect segue into this this question, is you said a garden desires to be enjoyed. My reaction to that was I, I had to stop for a second. And all I could think was, wow, you know, our gardens are so much work. I mean, it doesn't matter how small your garden Mm -hmm. is, they take a lot of care and feeding. And it's so easy for all of us to forget to just enjoy them. (laughs) And you wrote this, you said, I finally had a precious Sunday off after 13 days of gardening with the men. This is during your time in Japan. And then you wrote, so what did I do? I went to a bonsai show and I spent an hour staring at a tree (laughs) and I just thought I would have done the exact same thing. So I have to know, what are your thoughts on gardens and our unusual at times relationships with them? I know. Isn't it true that uh, garden geeks, as I like to call it, like we just, we almost can't help ourselves. You know, we get a day off and our friend's like, let's take a hike. But, you know, I, I encourage my clients a lot to relax in their gardens because I come and they're like, this is going on and that's going on and what are we going to do about this? And I can tell they have a sort of frantic relationship with their gardens or I sense that. So I encourage them to um, particularly get these um, nice outdoor furniture that, that like there is something about the outdoor couch. It's just you sit in it, it's so comfortable. Yeah. And you just relax. I've met landscapers in Japan that said, you know, one of their primary goals is that the clients love their garden. They say, you know, you can't it can't just be good. They're like, we're we're always redoing gardens that have been built by, you know, famous designers because the clients don't love the garden. The garden, it has to be loved. I can either go in a garden and I can solve this problem and I can solve that. As a pruner, I know how to look at a plant and say, you know, here are the problems and here's where I think there's beauty or and in the long run. Or sometimes I have to step back and I have to say, hey, what's beautiful about this? And, you know, you can imagine, like, if we're raising a child and we're always like, you're doing this wrong and that wrong and that wrong, and we never say, hey, this is where you really shine, and I want to tell you that. That's why, you know, occasionally I step back and, like, remind myself, I have to praise my garden and look at it and say, hey, you know, like when my mom comes and visits me, she'll look out the window um, for a day and she'll say, hey, you know, that that bird, he comes out all the time. And I'll look and I'll go, really? Like, I never even noticed the bird. I'm so busy working. She'll just notice all these little things because she's just sitting there and watching and enjoying. So, I, I just try and step back once in a while and do that as a gardener. One other thing is I was trained by traditional craftsmen um, of Japan. So I am pretty intense when I work. I'm, it's very easy for me to work nine hours with two 15-minute breaks. 
And one time I was volunteering for the Japanese garden up in Portland, a premier um, public garden. And um, I asked the curator, uh, Sarasumi Uchiyama, he was trained in Japan and came from a garden family there. After a couple of days of working there and us talking, I said, do you have any advice for me? Because Japanese craftsmen are just excellent mentors, and I rarely had the chance to speak English with one. And he said, Leslie, you need a hobby outside gardening. And I just couldn't believe he said that of all the things he could have said. But he nailed me, you know, that I'm really intense. And he said, Leslie, to know your craft well, you have to step outside of it and so that you can get a perspective on it. You can't just always be in it. You have to do something else so that you see it from another angle. And that's when I began to allow myself to take more time to do other things. Like I like to sketch gardens. It's relaxing, but it also helps me see And also, I finally, after years of searching for a hobby, I discovered sailing. And the first week I was out, somebody said, well, why did you start sailing? And I just looked at them and said, because there are no trees out here. (laughs) (laughs) But, But sailors are so similar to gardeners. They love weather. They're very aware of nature and, you know, I'm like, I'm aware of the tree's growth. They're aware of the wind and they have to work with a craft, like a skill and tools, the boat. They have to work with nature, which is wind and current. So sailing on the Berkeley Bay, it is intense. It's one of the windiest bays in the world. There is no wine and cheese going on. I mean, I was terrified every weekend I went out for a year, but I just would tell myself, it's just a feeling. And when I'd get off that boat, the adrenaline high was incredible. I would just be like, I did it. You know, it's part of going to Japan. It's just challenging myself mentally to, as adults, we start getting more and more comfortable with doing things that we're good at. But then we might, by doing that, we stop stepping outside that and trying something new because we're afraid of the failure. So I say, you know, all that can happen is I fail. And then I just try something else. There's this part in the book where you're talking about how the craftsmen gardeners of Japan taught you about pride, but also to find heart in the garden. And I personally always see pride as an offspring of love. That's why pride in work or family pride are things that I talk about with the kids all the time at our house. So how has pride played a role in your work, especially after your time in Kyoto? Well, I just found it amazing that you phrased this question in this way. No one has ever made that association to me in America, and it's very Japanese, actually. The two go hand in hand, pride and heart. You know, I'll say to become an expert in Japan, you know, if they do something for 15 years, they might call themselves a beginner at that point. And 
it's not until they've done 30, 60 years of something will they consider that they can say they're somewhat advanced. It's very interesting. It doesn't just take a few classes or an intensive month to be an expert printer. It takes years and years. Learn the skills. Do it. I love that. It's very Midwestern. You know, I'm part Southern. I'm part Midwestern, being from Oklahoma. Something I realized when I was writing these stories was how much more was going on that they were teaching me silently. And I realized what Americans often feel pride about is if we come up with something new or we create something. But Japanese are very willing to do as their teachers have told them and repeat a craft in the same way. They take a lot of pride from that. But they go more than that. But one is working a little harder than is necessary. <laughs> My coworkers, they're always carrying two debris piles. They were working per a set salary. So the fact that they ran all the time in between jobs, I couldn't understand it for the longest time. And they'd work late. They'd come early. They just would always do a little more. And I realized, oh, this is what makes them feel good is if they sacrifice every day. It was very subtle, but I noticed it in almost all the people I saw in Japan. Even, you know, if we went to a gas station and sold up on gas, the person at the gas station would wipe our windows and he would just make such effort and work really fast and efficient. And I thought, you know, if I do a little more than what's asked of me, and if I work with as much concentration and quality at the end of the day, before I've gotten any pay, before anyone's giving me any praise, I can say, hey, you know, I did my best today I, and feel good about myself. And the only thing I can compare it to is the way we are with children, our children here in the United States. You know, we read, I have lots of nieces and nephews, and you know, you read to them until you're falling asleep before they do, and you make a little extra special meal for them, even when you come home and you're kind of tired, but you're like, oh, this is their favorite thing. And we're not doing it for money. And we're, we're not expecting them to be praising us, which we would love, but we don't always get it. So at the end of our lives, it's the thing we look back on is the sacrifice we did for love. And it, you develop a special relationship when you do that. And that's the relationship I've been developing in the gardens that I work in. It is special to me over the years, and I think that I work hard. It helps create this relationship. As you were saying that, I was thinking about this quote in your book by one of your American mentors, Dennis, and he said, when I teach you something, Leslie, I'm teaching you what I was taught by my teacher and what that person was taught by his teacher and on and on. And you now become part of this lineage and we are all connected. Oh, yeah. It's really special the way they take teaching is so important to a craftsperson in Japan. You can learn a skill 
but my main mentor, Dennis Makashima, you can be a craftsman by doing your trade for years, but the only way you can become a master craftsperson is by becoming a teacher. And I noticed in Japan that the very youngest apprentice in our group, he was 16 or 17, and because he entered the company before me, uh, just by a few months, he was actually my senior because they do it all hierarchical by who enters the company. And that actually, that hierarchy, it keeps people from switching companies a lot because if you switch a company, you have to go to the bottom of the hierarchy again. <laughs> doesn't matter how much experience you have. And so what I noticed was after about a month, the guy started telling this young man who was around 16 or 17 to start teaching me. Even though I had had maybe seven years of horticulture training and uh, four years of a pruning business on him, but he would always try and tell me things, and usually it was wrong. <laughs> but once in a while, he had something to teach me. And it, it would frustrate me. But what I found was he was teaching me, A, to be humble and to be open to learning more that anyone has something to teach you. But also it's it's that tradition of teaching that they were teaching him. It was so important to the craft. Like you have to start that right away too. I love the sense of depth of time in the gardens of Japan. Um, there was a this time in the in an imperial garden I worked in where I was working away on a shrub with this very dangerous traditional scythe called a comma, or that's what our company would call it. And um it was almost like a baseball bat with a a sharp blade on the end that you, we would sharpen about every half hour. So it was sharp and we'd swing it as if you're swinging a baseball bat from left to right. And when you got it going fast enough, it would share the shrub that way. And I was just terrible at this. I mean, the guys, they could do the area of a backyard in an hour. They, it was just, they were so fast. And me, I would just like work on one spot and I would make these craters or I wouldn't swing fast enough. I was, I was never really good at baseball and it would just like kind of brush the leaf. I just, I couldn't believe how fast you had to swing that thing to get it to work. And this man came up to me in a business suit and told me, to hand him this extremely dangerous tool. I couldn't figure out who he was, but I just felt I had to do it. And he taught me a different swing, which worked. Just never said a word. Just showed it to me, gave me the tool back, and walked off. And I was just, I couldn't figure out what had just happened. But later, one of my coworkers, um, I happened to be sitting with him, and I said, I saw this guy in the business suit and I said, who is that? And he said, you know, that's the head gardener of Shugakuen, the imperial estate that we're working in. And it took my breath away that 
he had decided to give me a lesson. When one teacher teaches you something, you join this powerful lineage like a family. And it goes back in the depth of time, just like the gardens I work in that you know, the garden I was working in that day was over 350 years right now. It was created and worked on year after year. So it's this beautiful depth of time. Um, and imagine something that's been touched every year for hundreds of years. It just has a certain feeling that the newest, sweetest design can't have. So I learned a valuable lesson that day. You were born in the heart of the Midwest. You're a daughter of the great state of Oklahoma. And there's a lovely flashback in your book. It's in a chapter that's called A Seed Sprouts in Tokyo Gardens. And it's kind of the origin of how do you come to be interested in Japan or all things Japanese? And this this chapter really explains it. So read the introduction to this story. It's on page 17. And then tell us about this experience. Okay, this is the chapter, A Seed Sprouts in Tokyo Gardens. Here is the reading. The living room of my childhood home looked out onto another sort of natural woodland landscape where I climbed native persimmon trees filled with tiny fruits and buried deceased birds reverently placing twigs, crosses, and spring daffodils on their graves. Cardinals darted overhead as my sister and I climbed up a southern magnolia to get up onto our roof and look out over the expansive view of trees and houses beyond. Those early adventures inside an oak-forested enclave smack in the middle of Oklahoma City would eventually grow into my Kyoto garden journey. I moved away from this small forest when my parents separated. During the height of the feminist movement, my mom wanted to pursue her dreams. In this new arrangement, we saw our father every other weekend. My dad must have fretted over how his two youngest would react to his absence from our everyday family life. In truth, we loved our new situation. Instead of seeing our busy father just at dinner time, we got to spend whole weekends with him, getting him all to ourselves. I believe it was a mix of my dad's worry over the effects of the divorce and his love of traveling that inspired him to take us to a most unusual restaurant in Oklahoma City, Tokyo Gardens. Yeah, this restaurant... Uh, was so special to my memories of my childhood. And my sister found a postcard of it recently. It looked exactly like I remembered. I think it was a Japanese family that came to Oklahoma City and decided to open a restaurant because when I traveled in Japan, that was the only place I would find restaurants that looked like this restaurant. It had a whole room of the straw mats, which are called tatami. One room had tables you could sit at, but the main room had those low tables where you would sit on cushions. They served 
incredible Japanese food that I only have tasted in Japan and a few restaurants out here. And also during our meals, music would start up and then the waitresses would be dressed in kimono and they would do dances up and down the aisles for us. You know, what that restaurant did, I, I feel, looking back, is it taught me refined Japanese culture. The kimonos would have flowers on them, and the pictures had different plants. And they even had a tsukubai, which is a traditional water basin that is often in tea houses for you to wash your hands symbolically and purify things before entering the tea house. I'm I'm not an expert on tea houses, but there is this little pond and they had one in front of the restaurant in a brick basin, very Oklahoma version of a traditional Japanese tukubai. <laughs> and you know, as kids we get to go in and we even got to take our shoes off. It was so sweet that I got to do this. You know, when I went to Japan, there was a certain familiarity there. It wasn't completely foreign to me because of this restaurant that my dad used to take us to. And so I think sometimes these things, you know, that parents do with their children, it can affect them later. Like, I bring my dad with me wherever I go. No question. Later in your book, you wrote about how your dad... When he was in the hospital after a round of chemo, he yelled out to the nurse, you know, my daughter, Leslie, has worked at the Emperor's Garden in Japan. I just thought when I read that, first of all, how touching. But second of all, that Mm -hmm. even though your experience over there was so challenging, so demanding, I wondered if you knew or realized at the time how people back home felt about it because your dad was obviously so proud of you. People had to be so proud of what you were doing and rooting for you. Yeah, I I had no idea. <laughs> you know, there wasn't much internet back then. I would get I my the person I was dating with had like this old computer. I may be gone on it once a month. So I wasn't talking to any friends back home when I was there. It was a challenging experience. And I've heard that from anybody who trains in Japan. And also, Japanese do hold their emotions inside. And, you know, I was raised in Oklahoma. I'm a person, people always say, I wear my emotions on my sleeve. So it was a little hard for me to keep everything inside. I did meet some American friends there, thank goodness. And they would set things up for me on Sundays. Several of these women had done fine art apprenticeships, and one was translating Japanese books into English. And they knew what I was going through. So sometimes they would offer me advice, and they'd often arrange my social activities for Sunday because they knew I didn't have time working six days a week, 10 to 12 hours a day. I kid you not. (laughs) And sometimes seven days a week, which means I didn't get another day off till the following week. 
you know. And I boy, I needed my I needed my weekend off. And I can't remember if I mentioned this in the book, but one time I was getting a ride home from one of the workers in my company. And they're casually talking and, you know, the Japanese often save like the most important thing for last. So I was barely paying attention. I was just wanting to get home. And he goes, have you ever thought of studying Japanese like on your Sunday off? And I was just like, <laughs> I said, no, <laughs> that just, that was not going to happen. So I guess I was creating, it was a little difficult for them that I did not speak good Japanese. I mean, I tried, I don't, I don't learn languages well. And I, I studied it for two years before going. You, you have to know some Japanese in order to get around. I appreciate how they always want to push themselves a little further, but sometimes, you know, as an American, I needed my break. (laughs) (laughs) I had to chuckle when you shared how you managed to stifle your natural exuberance and responses. But also there's this adorable (laughs) paragraph where you you share what it was like to have to constantly curb your enthusiasm. Let's have you read that paragraph to us. Then talk to us a little bit about that, because even though this is a more lighthearted glimpse into some of the culture shock you went through, chat with us a little bit about the strain of having to constantly hold back during your time there. Yeah, this is, I hear this a lot from people who study out there that training in Japan is not something anyone would want to do lightly, regardless of how difficult I say it is, if somebody still just has to do it. That, that's the only way that I would ever recommend someone do it because it is so intense. It's a little bit like a military boot camp. So here's this paragraph, and I had just met a Japanese landscaper that I was considering asking if I could train with him, and his name was Sogyu. It was both my landlord and him who I was walking with, and the whole time they were speaking in Japanese and pretty much ignoring me. I could kind of hear my name mentioned once in a while, but I was feeling pretty invisible up to this point, and I was a little sensitive that I was being ignored as the only female in the group, (laughs) but I was trying to ignore that feeling and just be, you know, humble in my non-humble way. Um, so here's what happened. Sokyu talked directly to me for the first time. I visit a nursery tomorrow with my employees to shop for wild plants. Would you like to come? All the sounds around me, grass swishing outside the door, birds twittering from the trees, and a tea house employee chatting to a customer quieted in my mind when Sogi uttered those words. Run around with garden craftsmen from Japan? Yes, I wanted to scream, but I remained calm outwardly. I had been warned to keep my excitable emotions in check in Japan. That would be nice, I said, trying to maintain a Prince Charles sort of smile. Toned yet detached. (laughs) 
Um, I am rather excitable and chatty with my friends. And I was told in Japan that um, if you're really emotional, that they consider that immature. And um, one thing I learned that was very important when traveling is when we look confused and we furrow our brows, that means anger in Japan. So it's, you know, when you're asking a question, I always like keep my face very passive when I'm in Japan and keep a really gentle smile. And I would try and do that with men because then people are just, they're so sweet. They will help you so graciously. And if you can do subtleness with what we say and, and how we look. Senpai, the senior coworkers, they are trained. They're supposed to correct you. They're supposed to teach you things all the time. <laughs> so you have to take it. So I kind of took it, but I did fight back a little bit. And I we talked about how at the end of my apprenticeship, I was talking to my coworker, you know, because he had said, next time you come to Japan, you should read up on Japanese culture. <laughs> and I was like, hey, you know, I read two culture books before I came. And I said, you have no idea how much I wanted to say. And I stayed silent, you know, while we were working. And he said, you know, oh, we knew what you were thinking. And I was like, what? How? And he goes, we could see it on your expressions. And I, oh, that was so unfair. I hadn't thought about how I would, I'm expressive visually. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was a lot for a bubbly girl to keep it all inside and be working with the guys day after day. When I returned, I really almost had, I would call it a nervous breakdown. I could not work for a month. And a lot of people come back this way from Japan. It really is like boot camp. And every time I thought about my journal, I would feel a little sick. I am from a tradition in the South where we talk about when things are hard. You know, if it's hard, you talk about it. If it's good, you talk about it. But it wasn't until I rewrote these stories that then I saw how much I was learning every day, how much was going on, that I realized what a rich, beautiful experience it was. I had to look at it later. Yeah, there's a point toward the end of your book, you're just about ready to go home and you're still working and you fell asleep standing up, (laughs) waiting for your bus, no less. Oh, and and you didn't realize you'd fallen asleep until you were on the bus later because you you realized that time had passed but you you couldn't you couldn't account for it and then you figured out you'd been unconscious standing up which is crazy i know i i mean i'm used to getting my weekends off when i first started my business i would allow myself one four day weekend every month which I think is the best reason to have your own business. <laughs> um, every Friday, I don't work in gardens, but I do office work or I do um, advertisement or work on class. And that's when I started writing this book. 
And I always tell people it's really important to take some of your work time for reflection to develop other things, because if you do that, you can actually earn more money with that background. But while I was in Japan, working six and seven days a week, I never got an extra day off during those work weeks. I was just worn, waking up at, you know, 5.30 every morning. I like to sleep nine and 10 hours a night when I'm doing garden work. I mean, one of my friends who's a PhD, he would he said, how many hours do you sleep? He's like, I'm surprised you're not dead. <laughs> he, could, he probably got five hours of sleep. When you're working physical work, your body, it needs to recuperate. Yeah. It's different. Most people just go for three weeks at a time. So the three months I worked with the company and four months that I was there, it was actually a long time to be with them just to get my body able to handle that kind of intensity. <laughs> um, like when I'm tired, I just tell myself it's just a feeling. Just keep moving, Leslie. Yeah, you were in a state of constant override when you were there because you, I mean, not only did you have to override what you were thinking and what you wanted to say, but you had to override what your body was saying, which is, I'm tired, I'm cold. I mean, the constant references to the cold, I really could relate to. We got the forecast for this week, and I think we're going to be negative 14 by Saturday. So, you know, you're, a Minnesota reader was reading it with great sympathy. I, I totally got it. But it was truly, truly uh, <laughs> demanding experience. And, and I think people will really get a sense for that when they read the book. I was also totally captivated by the advice that you gave in terms of drawing inspiration for our own gardens. Essentially, it's the lesson that Dorothy learned in The Wizard of Oz. There's no place like home. All of our answers can be found right here. And so what you encourage is that when it comes to our gardens, it's important to pay attention to our natural environments right in our own backyard and use that for inspiration. You mentioned this in your book. It's on page 45. Let's have you read those two paragraphs and then talk about how important it is to be in nature in your own environment. I'm so glad you brought this up because this is a, a key point with Japanese gardens that people often misunderstand. So here's the, here's the paragraph. I've heard many times at Japanese garden conferences that to create a Japanese garden, one should use the native plants to the surrounding area of the garden rather than plants native to Japan. The American Japanese garden landscaper David Sawson, who is from the Midwest, I'll say, often discusses this concept, which is mentioned in one of the oldest Japanese garden manuals, the Sakuteki. Shizendo, the garden that I was sitting in at the time, would look beautiful in California, but would not necessarily feel natural given that Japanese plants can look so foreign in the dry summer and wet winter California climate. When I thought back to my familiar memories of nature to gain inspiration from my California home garden, I returned, like many city dwellers, 
to the remembrances of family camping trips. A landscaper in Japan once told me, Leslie, do not imitate our forest in Kyoto. Imitate your own forest. Landscapers throughout Japan make this mistake and copy the forests of Kyoto instead of the local forests surrounding their own area. Now, I think this a lot um, from uh, landscapers in Japan, and I continue to hear it. They say, Japanese gardens, they're trying to bring the essence of nature to the garden, whereas Western gardens are much more design-focused, where you have um, patterns and flowers and colors put together in different ways. Japanese gardens are just gardens that look like nature. There's different ways of approaching that. One way is to, is something that the Japanese gardeners would often tell me, they'd say, don't copy our gardens. Then it doesn't look as familiar to you. It'll look interesting. And, you know, you know, when we're taking these walks in the forest, it often is a place when we're walking in nature that we have time to think or we have time to talk to a friend and have a deep conversation. Maybe it's time to pray or to think about goals or or just relax. That's what these gardens are meant to do for us. So if they look too interesting and they have all sorts of um, weird, miniaturized and shared forms that are drawing our attention, that's not successful. And just like in America... There are many baseball players, and some are better than others. <laughs> in Japan, the same thing. There are many landscapers, and some are more successful than others, and people have different opinions on that. But they are trying to have the gardens look as natural as possible. So actually, this idea that the gardens are sheared and miniaturized is poorly pruned Japanese gardens. It was um, people are attempting to do what they think is right with all their heart, and I appreciate that. But what the craftsmen in Japan feel are the best gardens are the ones that you walk into, and a lot of Americans think are actually just little pieces of forest left behind in the city. Like, they don't even realize they're pruned. That's how natural they can be. And maybe a tree, a maple there normally grows 40 feet, and maybe they're keeping it 20 feet. So they are pruning it, and they're they're pruning everything in the garden. But it doesn't look that way to the natural eye. So they say, look at nature that is surrounding you for inspiration, because that's going to be the nature that relaxes you. And, you know, I take it a step further because I can tell when I'm using native plants in my garden, they just have a more relaxed look because they're meant to be there. I'm not having to pump them full of water all summer and um, I'm not having to use a lot of pesticides to keep them alive. You know, it saves money to use natives, but more, they just, they have a certain look that they belong there. 
And I love natives because even, you know, as I was talking to you, I saw, I'm looking at my garden right now, which is made to look like a campground um, on the edge of the forest. And I have a toyon bearing tree that is vibrant in winter. So as a natural garden, I'm allowed to have color in my garden, but it should be a color that denotes a season. So I have this toyon that has these red berries, and a little bird came and ate some of the berries, which is just incredible. <laughs> Someone told me, oh, no, you got rid of all your vegetable beds. And I said, oh, no, no, I, I still have a vegetable garden. It's just a vegetable garden for wildlife and birds. Because, mm. you know, I'm like, I can go to the grocery store, but the birds can't. <laughs> and I, I'll admit, I still have vegetable gardens in my driveway in big boxes. I love fresh vegetables. But native plants, you know, attract insects. And as we all know, beneficial insects uh, that protect our vegetable gardens, you know, Vegetable gardens don't look that good in, in winter. So maybe when you have that view out of very focused window from inside the house that you're in all winter, maybe that's the place to put a little natural scene that strikes up, you know, what are the most beautiful aspects of winter in your area? You know, maybe it's a deciduous tree and a rock and some kind of grass or plant that's lost its leaves or is losing its leaves that you can just look at and see the seasons go by over the years. That's what I like about Japanese gardens, which I call natural gardens. They, rather than show off flowers, they show off seasons. Fall and winter are actually extraordinarily beautiful seasons that we we often underplay in our gardens and they have give so much for us. That's a great perspective. I haven't heard it talked about that way before, showing off seasons. I do, yeah. Um, I do have this poem that I wrote about California in fall and winter and, and aging. It's called, I Prefer California Fall. Spring drives me insane compared to the fall yellow California dogbane. Is that a reddish-orange elderberry? Why no, an ash, said my son Carla expertly. I'll take the brown September spirea any day rather than the bread rose wedding bouquet. Check out that Stunning neon, September lichen on the log. Who'd ever notice it in a spring fog? Goodbye, snaggletooth redwood. Once the grandest tree around, the wind searches for you still, a soft crying sound. And I I like that part about my friend Carla, because when we go on hikes, we try and one-up each other on our horticultural knowledge, you know, but she always knows more than me, <laughs> you know. I'll be like, oh, that's such and such, and she'll be like, no, that's a such and such, and I'll look it up, and yeah, you're right. <laughs> I don't, Visually, I'm very strong, but 
memorizing names. I'm not as good at that. And this is a point I bring up in my book that, you know, I'm a slow learner and I don't learn languages well, but I don't let my weaknesses stop me from trying my dreams. And going to Japan was definitely the dream that very few I'd ever met had done. People had warned me. I knew it was going to be a tremendous struggle. I'd lived in France before, you know, a year abroad in college, and it was tough. And hey, I'd moved from Oklahoma to California. I, I know what it's like to change culture and how it can be hard. But I don't let my anxieties, my fears stop me. If I feel I have to do something, I just move forward and take that step and just see how it goes. Well, I remember when I read that part of your book that that you mentioned that you didn't feel you were a fast learner, that you didn't like learning languages. And I'm thinking... And you're going to Japan. You know, it's just like not even remotely close, just a completely different experience. So talk about courage pushing through that. I know. I, yeah, I always wonder where does this come from in me? And both my parents were raised poor and ended up having very vibrant careers. Just try, Leslie. That's what they would tell My mom would tell me. Just try it. All that you can get is a no. And I think I said it in my book that if <laughs> once we were going down this terribly steep hill, another adventure, my dad took us, there was only girls in my family, and he would just take us on the craziest adventures. <laughs> and we were going down this hill. I mean, I thought I was going to just slide down. I don't know how steep it was. And he said, you know, don't worry, Leslie, if you get scared, just get on your butt and slide. And I just loved that. That's when I start getting scared. I just think about that. It's kind of like, just do your best. Well, the way that your apprenticeship happened, how it came to be, seems like a divine alignment. And you mentioned that in your book, that there were so many pieces that had to come into play, where things had to fall into place. It was almost like the universe was saying, you can do this. We're going to make this happen for you. And you ended up having this incredible opportunity. I was thinking about your journey there and how hope and patience had come into play, that they played a role in having this opportunity open for you. And when you were telling this part of your story, you took a little break, you deviated for a moment, and you told this really charming story of an avocado tree that belonged to one of your clients. And I thought it was very, very sweet and a good reminder for us to not give up hope in our gardens and to continue to work on patience. Yeah, um, that was such a sweet story that came out by writing this book about this avocado tree that a client of mine in California had, and it had been killed down to the ground in a strong frost we had, which naturally doesn't happen here, but it started growing back. And, you know, I asked her if she thought we should plant another tree. I was very young. And, you know, once something's gone, you just like start over. And, but she had 
the wisdom of age. And <laughs> she didn't want to give up on that tree that was struggling there. And so she said, let's see what happens. So we waited for several years and indeed it did come back. And then it got bigger and I kept thinking it's going to fruit this year. And you know, six, seven, eight years passed, nothing. And in the meantime, my client was getting older and older. And finally she did die. And I called and we had a frost that winter that she died. And I called her daughter over the phone, kind of talking about the estate. And I said, oh, did the tree, you know, die again in the frost? And she said, oh, no, it's covered in avocados. And that was just, I I could not get over that. I do live in California, and a lot of people talk about spirit and nature here. I just thought, you know, I feel like her spirit went into that tree. It was waiting for her. I wrote this phrase um, called, one never knows when a hope will bear fruit. Mm. And that was the spirit of my client there. Mm. She never gave up on hope. And I am personally, I am hopelessly hopeful, <laughs> I would like to say. Our gardens, they're vibrant, and then they have issues and problems, and it's worth seeing it through. That's a part of this relationship. The point isn't necessarily that the garden flowers all the time and looks new and young. Part of it is seeing it age over the years, and yeah, maybe there's a dead branch. I mean, I have a dead branch on a tree in my garden, and I prune that tree so that that dead branch, you can see it clearly. <laughs> it's the funniest thing, because birds love dead branches. They appreciate it. You know, little worms and stuff go in those branches, and they can eat the worms, or they can peck at the wood. And we sometimes have a hard time with aging and and death. I feel like nature doesn't. Nature appreciates that rotation. So this lesson of the avocado, I teach me there's more here than just newness that's beautiful in the garden. Well, there were a number of very charming parts to your onboarding at at the company that you ended up getting hired by. Can you tell me the name of it again? It's called Ueto Zoen. Ueto Zoen. Am I saying that right? Perfect. Ueto Zoen. This was a very delicate interview process. And as a former HR gal, I used to interview people during my career. And so I was very fascinated by this, by this entire process. I would say it was a heightened experience. Anybody who's ever interviewed for a job can relate to being nervous. Interviews are anxiety provoking. And yet this experience, I think, took it up, you know, 10x. It was an exponential level of, of, of anxiety. Wow. You, you end up having this wonderful assistance, I guess, by your friend Asher, who suddenly just says, I'm coming in. He spoke 
a Japanese and he's like, I'm going to help you through this process. And there were so many intricacies here. This story alone, I think, perfectly illustrates so much about this very challenging culture you were entering. And I thought it would be fun if I just mentioned some of the more unique aspects that you encountered. This is just during the interview <laughs> process. <laughs> I mean, it's just, this gets covered on the span of, you know, what, six to eight pages, I think. And at every turn, mm -hmm. there is some new obstacle, hurdle, consideration that you have to factor in. It was not just a straightforward, you know, I'll walk in, I'll interview, they'll offer me the job and I'll walk out. It's, that's not how it works. So, what I thought uh, would be something we could start with is you and your friend Asher had to work out a signal up front so that when you were interviewing for this job that they wouldn't offer you the job on the spot. Explain that to us. Yeah, I, I felt like that interview that my whole life was like just this huge vortex and that it was getting smaller and smaller and smaller. And it led to that interview. Like that was the turning point. And I didn't realize it when I went in to that interview. I thought I was going to train with another company at that point. But luckily, this person who I went with, Asher Brown, who was already training in a Japanese company, I just said I was going to come by and see the property. And he said, well, we need to really plan out the question before we go, because this is an interview. So I had planned some questions, so I pulled those out as we were sitting at the bus stop, waiting for the bus to get to the company property. And he said, well, we should order the questions, you know, and I was like, okay. And then he also mentioned, you know, he's like, is there anything else, Leslie, that you need to know? in order to say, you know, that you want to work there or not. And he said, because if they ask you and you say no, that will be an insult to them. You know, you can't set up a situation where you say no. And I said, well, I've already talked to this other landscaper and I'm going to have to talk to my mentor back home before I make a decision. So is there any way to hesitate? So he came up with this elaborate plan that if we were getting to the point where I felt like I wanted to say yes, and I basically said it only if he offered me everything, which is what happened, <laughs> um, that I would get to that point, that we would come up with this question, and it was so Japanese. So this interview went through, and the, he was just offering me everything I wanted. They were working in multiple gardens throughout Kyoto. They had a pruning-only crew. They had hired foreigners before, so they were used to the difficulties of training a foreigner. They had worked with people who spoke English, and they'd worked with people of multiple ages because traditionally only you know, teenagers would start an apprenticeship, but they were starting to accept people older. Um, and I was in my 30s at that point. So everything was a go. And I was like, I was thinking, this is the company. But I just couldn't say yes yet until I talked to this other person. 
And so I gave him our signal and he turned to the person we were interviewing with and he said, if there were another company that Leslie was considering in Kyoto that was smaller, do you think that would be a good company for her to study with? And that was the signal to him that there was another company <laughs> and that he better not ask me if I wanted to work with their company. And the guy said, I think that is up to Leslie to decide. And that was the last time, you know, that was brought up. As it turned out, you know, we talked more and more and I showed him photographs of the work I had done back home. And, you know, my mentor, Dennis Makashima, back home had taught us very well how to prune pines. He had trained in a bonsai company in Japan. And at that point, we kept thinking, I kept thinking that the person we were talking to, who was the son of the owner of the company, and it, it went back, this company, 17 generations. Oh, um, it was it was incredible, and I didn't think he spoke English, so I kept asking my friend who was helping me. I, I kept saying, "Should we show him the photos yet?" And he kept saying, "No, no." And I, well, should we show him yet? And he was trying to be more humble, and he waited until the man asked to see the photos. But then at the very end. This person who would become my boss later, he turned to me and he said, when you would like to call, I will be waiting. In English. <laughs> I, just, I was rather like, oh, not only was I shocked that he understood English and probably heard our whole conversation about like that I kept asking to show the photos, a typical American, very eager. But then he said that I was all I could think in my girlish head was, wow, I've never had a man say that to me. <laughs> when you would like to call, I will be waiting. Oh, the the level of indirectness in that culture is it's mind boggling for a direct Midwesterner American. You know, Oklahomans are very direct. <laughs> and they take pride in that, saying what they believe in. But in Japan, you know, things are more internal. And I, I wanted to say how that indirectness, it shows itself in the garden, too. Because, you know, this whole idea of a natural garden when you have a western garden and it's just flowers are here and cool things here and it's it's just kind of grabbing your attention here and here and here but a natural garden it almost veers on boringness because it just looks like a slice of nature that's what it should look like not a miniaturized but a slice and it's a place that allows you to have room to think and you to have time to make your own decision what to think. It's not telling you what to think. And that's where that indirectness of their culture kind of, it's space, spaciousness for things to happen naturally. It's, it's rather sweet. 
this whole give and take between you and this gentleman that was interviewing you. See, what I didn't appreciate when I was reading it is your buddy Asher sitting there and and you're thinking, let's show him my pictures. I want him to see, you know, that I'm I'm capable, that I'm up to this challenge. And he kind of kept waving you off like, no, 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 not yet. We're not doing it yet. And I didn't understand, again, through my lens of a Midwesterner hard work ethic, I will show you, you know, I will show you that I'm capable. Um, I'm going, I'm like, why, why was, why was that a big deal? Why were you holding off? And now I get it. It would just be way too aggressive, too in your face to be like, Look what I did. It's it, you need to be asked. The other question I had about this was, um, you made a, a remark or you commented about the pictures that caught his attention, and they you said they were toward the end of your portfolio, and I think they had more to do with the fact that you had Japanese mentors in America. It seemed like that caught his attention. Yeah. Yeah, and this interested all my Japanese coworkers because I showed them these photos. And um, it was only the last few. And one is of my mentor, Dennis, and I working at the Science Exploratorium in San Francisco. And we were both teaching young people bonsai. And then the other was of my bonsai teacher, and I, I, I hesitate to say he's my bonsai mentor because I'm so bad at bonsai. It takes extreme patience to do bonsai right, and I'm better at landscape plants where I can really do some pruning. But the next one was of Moss Imazumi, who there have been two books on bonsai, and the last one, a lot of the photos, all of the photos are of my teacher, Dennis, and his hands and his plants, and he advised a lot on that, that Sunset Magazine. And the one before it, the previous Sunset book on bonsai, had my teacher Moss's plant on the cover. And Moss taught me a lot about Japanese culture. Both of these people were Japanese-American. Dennis was born and raised in Berkeley but went to Japan to study. And Moss was actually, I believe he was born in Japan and he came to America at a young age. And he also was in the military in the war and suffered quite a bit of discrimination as a Japanese American at that point in the war. And both of them went on to become very successful in their fields. But the Japanese, they really appreciated that I honored my teachers. That's what was important about having those two photos. You know, the last is the most important in Japanese culture, and I knew that. Okay. So I put those photos last, and it didn't show me. It showed that I was willing to learn and that I honored my teachers. And that that meant a lot to them. You had this interesting experience where you were sharing business cards with each other. I thought that was quite interesting. And then you also gave him a gift, but you had to be very considerate about what kind of gift you give the person that just interviewed you for a job. So tell us about those two aspects as well. Yeah, those two 
two things really showed aspects of Japanese culture. The business card exchange. Now, I had read about this in my Japanese culture book that you weren't allowed to take someone's business card and just put it in your back pocket. That would be a total put down that you, so I bought a special case to hold my business cards and my business card was, you know, had a maple on it with a little Samara, the maple leaf. And, you know, that signified my love of Japanese plants and also my feminine side. And so it was rather, you know, I took a lot of time at it. But the person who I exchanged the cards with, you know, his was pretty plain. It was just a name, a title. But when he gave it to me, as I was instructed in my book, and this is good for anyone visiting Japan, you're supposed to look at the card and you're supposed to go, ooh, wow, and like carefully put it in the sleeve of something. And, you know, it's a formality that I'm, I'm not even sure what. It's almost like you're in 18th century England, you know, exchanging cards. It's just the levels of politeness. It's fascinating in Japan. And the exchange of presents is another aspect where if you give something, somebody something too big, you know, they always have to reciprocate. So if it's too big, then they're going to have to come up with something big. Another advice I was given to never comment, praise, like whatever someone gives me, don't praise it too much because that makes it big psychologically and they'll feel bad. So often when you give a present, the person almost practically just throws it behind their shoulder and like walks off. (laughs) But even if they really appreciate it, but they're trying to be careful about the give and take of the exchanging. So what I decided to do was I brought a bag of homemade chocolate chip cookies. I thought this, you know, represented my American side and also that I'm uh, a woman and I'm proud of my cookie. And just, you know, kind of my no-nonsense, like I'm willing to sacrifice. Because I had been taught about the Japanese praising sacrifice. My teacher often told us, you sacrifice and you get the reward. And Japanese are often like this. It's effort is praised more than success. So since I had to make the cookies, it wasn't just buying them. I thought he'd say that, that I I knew if they decided to train me, they're going to take a lot of effort to do that. So I wanted to show him that I was already willing to sacrifice some of my time, too, for him. You know, I mentioned that I did have a little feeling inside when we were at the bus stop. I just didn't realize it till later. And I don't I don't have these feelings like that very much. A couple times in my life. But I had this sort of feeling that something was about to change. Um, I'm always like, gosh, when am I going to feel that again? But it was a really special moment, that interview. Yeah, I was very, very fascinated by it. When you talk about giving him the business card, I'm imagining you held it in t- on two hands, like on oh, either yeah. side of it. And then you're bowing down, presenting this teeny little business mm-hmm. card to him. 
You know, the other thing too, I had to kind of wonder and and chuckle just a little bit if because they hold back so much and they're indirect about things, if they don't almost delight in trying to elicit something more than just a casual, restrained response. And here's what happened. So you, you did call him, you took the job, and the company does this. They didn't give the people working at the company a detailed heads up that you, an American female gardener, 30-something years old, would be joining them. All they said was that an American will be joining us. Tell us what happened the day you pop on the job scene and what their reaction was. I didn't hear about this till much later. I have to say, um, I thought they had told the company that because they told me to come on Monday and I had several days to get ready and I arrive and, you know, everyone's just standing there looking normal. Well, apparently my coworker who spoke English said that they had told them that an American would be joining the company. So they all assumed it would be a guy. And I think it's very interesting that they did this. <laughs> so that when I showed up, you know, and I have long hair and it was pulled back, but it was quite obvious how as a woman, my friend said that all the men almost fainted when they saw me. <laughs> and, you know, I think kind of set up a situation. I, I'm impressed with the company, how they did this. The men were thinking all that weekend, oh, an American joining. How are we going to train him? What are we going to do? You know, how are we going to treat him? And then they saw I was a woman. Well, they'd already set up an image of how they were going to train me in their head before they saw that I was female. And that, that image might have looked very different if they hadn't, if they had said I was a woman. And this is where I find Japanese can be so such clever teachers and mentors. They knew that everyone was going to have different impressions in their mind of a female apprentice. So they were trying to get people to just stay on board, you know, treat me as another apprentice. Yeah, and so so cleverly, too. And you have to wonder if they weren't just standing there that day kind of watching their reaction because if everyone oh is practically gosh. fainting, can you imagine how hard they had to yes. hold it in? I know. I don't, <laughs> I don't know what it looks like when a Japanese craftsman almost faints. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's play a quick translation game for anyone who gets your book and is sounding out the mm. words in their head. So what I'll do is I'm not going to butcher these words. I'll say the definition and then maybe you can mm. tell us the Japanese term and a little bit about why it's in the book. Yeah, um, I have to say, I the way you do that because that's how I learned a lot of these words was just through hearing, not through, through written language. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I thought it would be so wonderful for them to hear you say some of these words and then talk to us a little bit about them. Each one of them has kind of a story or a a place that they hold Mm -hmm. in the book. The first one is the term for don't give up. That's, it's a similar word to good luck in English. People say, 
Gambate means don't give up. You notice the difference. Like in America, we say good luck. It's all about, you know, I hope you have success. But in Japan, they're assuming you're going to sacrifice, and you're going to sacrifice and sacrifice, and you're going to start to wear down. And they're saying, we know you're going to do this, and we want to give you some courage and advance, like keep going, keep doing that sacrifice. We're, we're so impressed with how hard you're trying. You know, we know it's not easy, but we're impressed with your effort. And people said that to you. Oh, yeah, all the time when I'd be in the gardens. More often than not, a Japanese woman visiting the gardens would be fascinated by me. And this brings up uh, another word, which is geijin. And geijin is a word for a foreigner. And so I looked like a Japanese craftsman from behind because I'd have my outfit on. My hair would be tied behind a scarf. But when I turn around, these women visiting the garden would see I was a woman and white. They literally they go, Gaging, Gaging. <laughs> <laughs> and then they would try and talk to me and I'd be I couldn't speak Japanese that well, so I often couldn't understand what they were saying. But we'd eventually, you know, get around to a few sentences and then they would always end with gambate. And I appreciate they offered their Japanese way, you know, at extending their culture to me. Hmm. How about the term for this special type of footwear? Mm, yeah, the jikatabe. Jikatabe. Jikatabe is a cloth boot where the big toe is separated from the rest of the toes. Kind of like, I like to say, the creature from the Black Lagoon boots. (laughs) (laughs) And it's very traditional. They've been worn for hundreds of years. So people often ask, why do you wear them? Because they're very thin-soled, like just a super thin plastic sole. Practically speaking, it doesn't wear the moss down. And moss shows age in a garden. And remember how I talked about how important age is in these gardens to have them have a natural feel. So they feel like wearing socks in the garden. (laughs) (laughs) They can be difficult to use for me when climbing trees. I need a really thick sole of a boot when I'm climbing a tree to put in the crotch of a tree so I can get up. When I'm wearing jikatabi, I can sometimes almost twist my foot. You know, and it doesn't damage the bark as much, but I need that thick sole. And they get cold, they get wet easily, they're just thin cloth, they're really hard to get on and off. There's like a million cloths. <laughs> so people are like, well, why do people use them? Well, I mean, it gets back to this connection with the history of gardening and following tradition and respecting tradition because it's been done for hundreds of years. That's why they do it. You know, it's tradition. And when I started my first day on the job, they took me to a garden store and had me buy the boots because they weren't going to have one of their workers enter a garden without the kikatabi on. They're very, <laughs> um, <laughs> they had a hard time finding boots in my size. I was almost taller than all the workers. <laughs> oh, 
in my group, except for my boss. And I'm, I'm only 5'3", you know, <laughs> so my shoes were, were kind of big, but I got my boots and sometimes I think about like the Christmas tree, like why do we keep doing this? We're cutting trees down, we put it up, we take it down. It's so much hassle. I know it's pretty, but who has time to do it? Well, you do it because your parents did it as a child and their grandparents. And their mentors and their friends and the people special in all their lives did it. And you're connected to all those people in the past. And you're connected to all the people in the future. Your kids, you know, children you meet, people you influence. That's why we do something symbolic like the Christmas tree. And Digitabi um, and is the same. When people go to your website and they click on the link that says cutting back where they can look at your book, you have pictures of your time in Japan. And I'm scrolling through looking at the pictures. And then there's a picture of the work crew of the men that you worked with. And of course, I'm, I'm totally scoping those guys out because I want to see what they look like. And you know, just put names (laughs) or faces to names. Mm -hmm. Anyway, I clicked close. And then I'm like, wait a minute. I think I just saw that crazy footwear that she talked about in the book. And sure enough, I go back to that picture and I think it was mm-hmm. the boss is sitting on the ground and he's got his foot extended mm-hmm. and there's the the mm-hmm. sole of this shoe. And you can see he's got the big toe is in a separate compartment or whatever. And then all the other toes are together and he does. He look, looks like he's wearing Creature of the Black Lagoon boots. <laughs> I and I just was like, yes, I got to see it. I know what it looks like now. But I yeah. could not believe you would go to the work site mm-hmm. wearing the, these crazy boots and your feet were freezing. It was freezing cold. You couldn't feel mm, like you'd yeah. start you'd start the day out with cold feet. I can't imagine anything worse. That's really difficult. Yeah, that's the photo diary. There is this great shot of my crew, the main people in the crew. And my boss is there sitting down. And if you notice, he's smiling. This man never smiled, ever. I mean, he could yell like, respectfully to people, but he could yell for hours every morning. <laughs> but boy, you pull a camera out, ding, he's got that smile on his face that lasts, it will last for centuries. I think that's why I was like, are you kidding? Because, you know, I read this book and they came across as a little intimidating. You know, I mean, they were a little scary to me. And then I'm going, okay, I really, I want to see what these guys look like. And then I'm like, they looked very harmless. And then mm. and then he is smiling. And I thought, oh, that's weird. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, before we go any further, I want to make sure we cover one word while we have an expert with us. I thought it'd be great to ask you, but it's the word for plant in a pot. And you've mentioned it a couple mm. of times now, but help us help us learn how to pronounce this correctly. All right. Well, this is a great word for the listeners to know. So I want everyone to listen carefully. <laughs> but bonsai, bonsai plant means plant in a pot. And people often mispronounce it as bonsai, which actually is the word that people jumping out of a plane use. 
you know, like tally ho, bonsai. That's what that means in Japanese. So we're getting the last syllable correct. We're messing up on the first one. Yeah. Okay, bonsai. All right. (laughs) But the plant in the pot, you pronounce it like our bone, so bonsai. So you can even correct your friends who mispronounce it and you can correct them. It's such a great little piece of knowledge to use. So bonsai, bonsai. is the way to pronounce it. How about <laughs> the word for broom? That's in your book as well. For broom, yeah. Kabuki is my favorite broom. It's a hand broom. Boki is broom, but te, te means hand. Tebuki is this hand broom that's made of bamboo and bamboo twigs all tied together in a bundle. And it's so fantastic because you can brush little rocks and corners. Things made from bamboo is another art form in Japan and a craft that's highly respected and a little bit expensive. And that's why people often don't import these because really well-made hand brooms can be $35 in Japan. Ah, you know, I think people would love them out here. They're just, they're so cute and easy to store. <laughs> um, I love the kabuki. How about there were these, these two words for tools that you used on these job sites quite regularly. The first was the word for a large dustpan. And then the other one was for the round tarp that you would let branches and debris fall into. Oh, these are such great tools. They are masters at tools in Japan. The dustpan is called a me. And this one was bigger than our normal household dustpan, about three times the size. So it was really easy. You threw the biggest branches in the tarp, and then the remaining you could sweep up in this big plastic or bamboo dustpan. And the barren bukuro, which is the tarp that's round, and it sits like a bucket. It has sides on it instead of just being flat. I talk about how years before I went to Japan, my mom bought me a special gift, and it was a bound book girl. She found it at Smith & Hawkins, and it was a tarp with sides. And, you know, when I prune out here in the United States, I'm often doing much bigger branches than we did in Japan because the gardens we worked on were often 100, 300 years old. The plants had slowed down, so there was a lot of little work. But here in the States, I'm often slowly designing gardens over time from scratch. Like, they're just planted, and I am... you know, making really big cuts on trees. But when I was in Japan and I discovered the Baron Bukuro, I just thought, mom's no best. Yep, mom was right. (laughs) How about this term? It's the term for shoe removal room. Yeah, it's a very important room in a Japanese home. And I first discovered it at the little Japanese restaurant, Tokyo Gardens, that I used to go to with my father as a child. And we, when we entered the restaurant, there was a, a side room with all these shelves 
and we'd get to put our shoes in them. And traditionally, this room, it's called the Ginkan, G-E-N-K-A-N. It's a place in a Japanese home just when you first enter the front door, and it's usually lower than the rest of the house. When you take your shoes off to enter the house, nothing that touches the ground of the outside world is supposed to touch the ground of the inside world of the home. And uh, I just love this cleanliness. So not only do they always have a Genkan area that I saw where you remove your shoes in apartments, homes, the gardens. You know, when some of your listeners visit Japan and go to public gardens, they'll often ask you to remove your shoes. So it's really important to keep an eye out for a shoe shelf because sometimes someone, you know, no one's around and people just walk right in and you're actually bringing the outside world. It's just, it's traumatizing for Japanese. So sometimes I'd go in very slowly even to these buildings of public gardens and I make distinct eye contact with the workers and start reaching for my shoes because they were so worried I was going to not take them off. It's a lovely kind of symbolic gesture. <laughs> well, there is a very, very funny story in your book. It's a term that you used to describe a raccoon-like creature over in Japan. And you have to tell the story associated with this, too, because it really is funny. Yeah. I'll start off by saying, you know, over time, I was getting a little tired of people seeing me in the garden attire and exclaiming, you know, and all rushing at me and, you know, trying to say sentences I couldn't understand. So one time in this imperial garden, I knew there was a tour group that was slowly circling this huge lake. So I decided to hide behind a shrub so that they wouldn't discover me. Um, So here's what happened. I eyed the tour group walking around the lake in the far distance and knew from past experience that it would reach me in about 10 minutes. I made a split-second decision and slipped behind a long, thick shrub that circled the outer perimeter of the lake before anybody could stop me. I waited. As the tour group approached, I became more still. The group passed right by me, their slender, stocking-covered legs and high heels at eye height, their shoes grating against the gritty white gravel path. Ah, for once, I felt a sense of peaceful distance from a tour group, like watching a movie in a dark theater. I could hear every word they spoke their eyes grazing right over my location, never suspecting that I lurked behind the shrub, completely camouflaged with my cocky outfit and dirt-smudged cheeks, I relaxed. Just for the fun of it, I looked straight into a woman's eyes. You! Tanuki! She screamed, pointing towards me. Tanukis are little creatures that look a bit like raccoons but they carry a certain mythical status. In folklore, they can shapeshift into many things, including human beings, 
and might account for mysterious singing or drumming coming from the forest. Little Tanuki statues proliferate in Kyoto Gardens, as ceramic gnomes do in other parts of the world, including California. The whole tour group rushed towards me. I had no choice but to stand up and reveal myself. (laughs) Surrounded within seconds, I turned bright red while I hastily tried to remove leaves from my hair. I looked down at the dirt on my uniform and attempted to step back just a little so as not to sully the adorable purses and color-coordinated skirts worn by the gushing women. I was even better than a tanuki. they all said. And then, upon closer inspection, a girl. They swarmed me. I bowed sheepishly. Enthralled, they all spoke at once, asking me indecipherable questions. How I envied their gentle stroll in such lovely attire. We couldn't speak each other's language, but we had a meeting that likely none of us would ever forget. Yeah, that was a (laughs) that was one of my funniest moments in Kyoto, I must say, and one of my most memorable. I loved it. I loved it because I could totally picture you seeing that the, the this group of women is coming and then you crouch down. I mean, people, you know, talk about these mythical creatures called tanuki and they hide in shrubs and they sometimes shapeshift into people. So it's just me being there, this white person in an historic garden, a woman in Japanese pruning attire must have given them a heart attack. Oh, I bet. I love it. Yeah, I love and it. this was a really, you know, I talk sometimes like about heart in the garden that, you know, I feel like the garden is almost like a conductor of a symphony. And it's not just about gardeners working with heart for the plants. Sometimes, you know, my friend says to me, you know, sometimes I'm having a hard day when I'm working in the garden and I'm working there with the plant and I don't know who's helping who, but I feel better at the end of the day. So I feel like the garden are there for us too. Um, so there's a lot of connection going on with these gardens. They're not just there to look at. And that episode with me in the bushes was one of those moments where, I mean, we connected me and those women in a special way that had never been seen before in the 350 years of sugar good. But, but that's what the garden, the garden was about. Like the emperor was, he created it for his friends and him to enjoy. And it was still there being enjoyed, you know, but by a contemporary audience. <laughs> well, and you added a very special delight that day. So that was tremendous. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a part in your book, a sentence that I underlined, and you wrote that the garden was saying, do you care enough about me 
to continue. And what you're talking about here is this struggle to show the men that you're working with that you were a tough female gardener, and yet they still tried to protect you. Oh, yeah. (laughs) I love that section. Um, So here's what happened. The Imperial Garden challenged me by asking, do you care enough about me to continue? As I came upon the old wooden boathouse, the garden recited a poem of age, decay, and beauty. Mere photographs cannot capture the intimacy of a garden. Yes, and the the intimacy of gardens, it continued with the gardeners themselves in this next paragraph. Nakaji bellowed his commands across the gardens of Shigakon. Colors like moods altered daily with the coming season. His voice, or perhaps other seasonal influences, finally shocked the maple leaves into great swaths of bright red and orange en masse. The maple sighed one last great colorful breath before their syrupy sugars made their way down into the roots for winter. Nakaji reached my area and walked over to closely examine a tall hedge, which I thought I'd mold near the front entrance of the garden. I held my breath, but continued to work at an increased pace when he came into view. He looked to the hedge up and down and without a word walked off. Wow, progress or complete failure. Nakaji asked me after I had been coughing for several days, Are you feeling sick? Daijob, I replied, which meant I'm fine. I refused to admit defeat to the men. Nakaji commanded me to switch from using the scythe to raking leaves. Suspicious that I was receiving special treatment, yet feeling slightly weak myself, I obeyed. I raked a mass of fallen rust and golden leaves atop a damp emerald moss carpet, feeling guilty about clearing away the beautiful scene, but grateful to take it easy. Yep. Despite being a tough taskmaster, he had this softer side that he showed you only a handful of times. Yeah, I mean, I felt like the whole time I was working there that Nakaji would always give me a job that was a little more difficult than what I could handle. So all I could focus on was that I was failing and that he probably wouldn't give me an interesting job the next day because of it. I I didn't realize till I wrote my stories that he was actually purposefully, probably, giving me something that was challenging. He was trying to push me. And later, you know, it was actually a male editor that pointed out, you know, he said, every time Nakaji did that, offered you something that was more challenging than what you could do, he was saying to you, I have faith in you that you can learn this, which was a much bigger compliment than if Nakaji had ever, you know, had said, 
good work, which he never did once. <laughs> and um, yeah, I'm amazed sometimes about. I I talked to how how much I endured there. I mean, I talked to a, a female friend from Wisconsin recently, and she said, "I just I can't believe how you endured the cold." And I was like, "Really? I mean, doesn't it get really cold in Wisconsin?" <laughs> so I thought in Japan I was really being a wimp. And she said, no, it never gets, you know, when you get cold, like in Japan where it's humid cold, that's colder than here. And I was like, really? I don't know know how you feel, but I was just trying to hold my own. And, you know, I did get sick for that one week. I worked in the Imperial Garden, but nothing was going to keep me from working there. I knew what a special opportunity that was. Um, my favorite garden in Kyoto, Shugakuen. So the boss, you know, he started having the younger coworker clean up after me and carry my debris piles because our truck was blocks and blocks from where we were working. And the minute I started feeling better, even though I never would admit verbally to them I was sick, I was coughing like crazy, the minute I started feeling better, he started pushing me again. And I just, I admire that guy so much. Yeah. Well, I tell you, anytime someone has become a supervisor, they have to face the challenge of delegation. And delegation is a tough thing for many people to learn how to do well. And he did it. It sounds like he did it. I I like the fact that as I was reading through a lot of these stories, he was really sequencing your assignments with every task. He was either upping the challenge level or decreasing the challenge level until you showed your mastery. And then he just keep, you know, giving you more and more. It reminded me, my son had this basketball coach last spring. And when he messed up, he got pulled off the court and told what he had done wrong. And uh, not 30, 40 seconds later, he'd be put back in the game. And then the next person messed up and then they were pulled off the court and then they were told, you know, what they had done wrong and what they needed to do. And and that just continued. And yet, even though it was difficult to get constant, you know, very stern, very direct feedback that these young boys were probably not used to because prior to this, they'd been taught by parent coaches and parents are always much more Mm -hmm. gentler in their instruction. Um, I had to admire the guy because I'd never seen players change their behavior so drastically after getting coaching. Mm. And when I was reading the story of how of how this gentleman would work with you, like, okay, next tree, next tree, you know, <laughs> that's what it reminded me of. I thought, well, one tree at a time here, we're going to get Leslie to be a better pruner. <laughs> and that's what he did. Yeah, it's, it's like, it is teaching with heart, isn't it? And, you know, there is something we can learn from, say, online courses, and it, it's wonderful that it can teach so many people, but that one-on-one personal mentorship, you can't do that on the computer. You know, teaching multiple people, you can't hold back and push forward and notice their subtle um, behaviors. 
it's a it's an old art form, but it just makes exquisite garden craftsmen, I must say. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, and it was tough. And I thought it got a lot tougher for you as the holidays approached because I think the homesickness mm-hmm. sounded like it, it started to elevate, you know, just the fatigue. I mean, the fatigue was starting to set in. You were really running the marathon and you were getting toward the end of your time there, but it was tough. And there was kind of a Hunger Games element to it. I have to say <laughs> that um, this one story, <laughs> I thought you'd get a kick out of it. You know how in the Hunger Games, when um, they would get into a bad situation, occasionally they'd get a white parachute, right? The little white parachute would come down and it would have just one little thing that they would need to get them through until the, you know, the next time they needed a parachute. And you had this moment happen to you. You were in a garden. You were working uh, for Mm -hmm. this woman. And it just turned out that she happened to have a child studying in the United States. So you had this little connection. And then when it came time Mm -hmm. for your food break, she got you something. And I I thought it was your white parachute moment because um, Mm -hmm. you had written at that point that you felt isolated, you felt despair, you were just feeling so, so, so low. And yet uh, here you're thinking you're being stoic. You're thinking no one knows. And here comes this white parachute. You've got to, you've got to tell this part of the story because I just thought this just really was very touching. (laughs) I think that Japanese would love this chapter. I hope, I hope they translate this book one day because they love drama and even this idea of struggling till you've almost can't go on any further <laughs> and pushing through that. They, you know, having gone through the war, they appreciate that. And that's part of why they're willing to show these deadwood in the garden sometimes, which can be shown off in bonsai, the struggle to survive. And I was really getting, yeah, towards the holidays, you know, we all get more sentimental and I was getting so tired and every morning it was getting colder and it just went really sudden and I wasn't used to working in that much cold and I didn't have appropriate shoes. I only had another month and so I didn't feel like I could afford to buy a thicker pair of Jikatabe. And so my shoe, my feet would have shooting pain for three hours every morning and my hand. And my American friend, Asher, he got frostbite that winter, actually. That's how cold it got. So I was getting very tired and I was just feeling pretty sorry for myself and like, you know, the holidays are coming and I was away from my family. I was getting near Thanksgiving and this client had put out this, um, you know, we usually got really pretty nice snacks during our breaks, which were at 10, at noon, and 3. And I say that because that's the same for all craftspeople in Japan. If you are a contractor, if you are making pottery or, you know, blue-dyed cloth or plaster, they do natural plastering there is another craft. You take these breaks. So it connects all the craftspeople in this lovely way. 
And they bring us tea, uh, a pot with hot water, a teapot with leaves, and then we would brew our own tea, and they'd serve them in cups. And I was just kind of nibbling on my pastry, although it looked like a French pastry, which is pretty nice of a client to do. I All I could think about was how I was going to miss Thanksgiving with my family, and I was going to be there with you know, I think I had to work Thanksgiving Day, so I was going to be there in the garden, running, sweating with these guys who don't know anything about my holiday. And, and then I just started, I was like looking at my pastry because it was kind of unusual. And I realized it was kobacha squash, which is a Japanese pumpkin. You know, it's a really nice form of pumpkin. And boom, it hit me. Japanese pumpkin, and it was a little pie, a, a pumpkin pie that I was eating. And this mom, I had talked to her earlier, much earlier in the day, and her daughter had trained in California, actually. She had gone to university here, and was we were talking about Thanksgiving, and I think she had run out and got what she thought was the closest she could get to pumpkin pie for me. And, oh, I mean, I just almost broke down crying right there. And that she didn't say anything. I could have missed it. That's the the heart. I keep bringing this up. The heart and the garden. That garden brought me and that mom together that day through, through that pie. It was just too big a coincidence. And, you know, I tell people, it's great looking at gardens, but when you work in a garden, you get so much more. And I know your listeners will understand that, you know, with engagement with wildlife and people and plants. It's just the gardens are the orchestra conductor. They bring us all together. Yes, they do. Yes, they do. Well, there were a number of experiences that you shared of these Japanese gardeners. I enjoyed reading your book so very much. There were so many instances where I was just Mm -hmm. so struck by the level of dedication and pride again of these Japanese gardeners and craftsmen. On page 101, you tell a story of just how picky Nakaji could be your boss. And I and I just wrote, there's picky and then there's picky. And this guy was massively picky. And that little clip from page 101, I mean, just really gets down to brass tacks about that. So I'd love to have you read that. And then on page 116, you share about a time you pruned a pine for him. And I just died reading this one as well. Mm-hmm. Then when you're done, let's chat about this level of excellence and what it was like to work like that. Oh, yeah. We were working at a garden and all of us wanted to get off early. So we had worked particularly fast. We were almost at the end of the day and we had just finished cleaning up. We raked. We did the blower. We picked up leaves by hand. Everything was put away. And this happened. Nakaji yelled something, and we all looked up. He pointed at the pebble stream surrounding the pine hill, to our tarps, and then to the truck. 
His voice went up and down in consternation. He bent down, pushed Pebbles aside impatiently, picked out some pine needles, threw them off to the side with disgust. Apparently, a few pine needles had gotten into the dry pebble stream. Kay briefly instructed me on how to push aside the pebbles, a square foot section at a time, brush out dirt and needles from the concrete bottom, and then return the rocks to the clean stream. This took three of us working desperately quickly, about an hour to complete. Believe me, I didn't leave a single pine needle behind. The work proved tedious and annoying, but when it was done, the stream did appear to sparkle, exquisitely transformed. I'm a clean freak, but when it came to Nakati, I'd met my meticulous match. <laughs> so the other reading, um, yeah, I, I often was very curious about what the boss was saying about my work, that he spoke fluent Japanese without slowing down, and I could never understand a word he said. I just, I only understood basic Japanese. And mind you, the Japanese craftsmen, they learn many different art forms, but pruning is just one art form that these, what we call the Japanese gardener, learns. They call themselves ulekia. They learn pruning, landscaping, bamboo fence construction, rock work, and maintenance. So they're learning at least five different jobs that we might consider unique jobs on their own, like unique careers out here, and which is often why their apprenticeship lasts anywhere between five and 15 years. That's about three years per class. So I had been working on a pine tree, and Nagachi said quite a bit after it. And I pulled aside my coworker, Kay, who could speak English, and I was trying to get him to tell me what it is Nagachi said, and this is what happened. I placed my yellow dictionary into Kay's hand with an encouraging, appreciative look, and he opened it and search for words. I waited apprehensively, excitedly. I'd never received direct feedback from Nakaji. Nakaji said, Kay spoke with clear enunciation, your time looks as if it were blown by the wind. Hmm, I reasoned, blown by the wind could mean good or bad. After all, there is a tree style in bonsai called shakan, windswept. Then Kate flipped through the dictionary to the back and then to the middle, his face constricting with concentrated effort. I have it, he said. Tortured, he proclaimed. Nagachi said your branch looks tortured blown by the wind, and tortured. <laughs> um, Kay and I looked straight into each other's eyes and burst out laughing. <laughs> <laughs> and 
I don't think I ever asked Kay to translate another one of Nakachi's sentences after that. <laughs> I had been trained in America by Japanese American mentors and also their students who they had begun training. They taught me too. We have a whole pruning program at Merritt College Horticulture School, which is unique in the country, this, teaching this naturalized pruning. I think only in the Portland Japanese Garden, where they just opened up a whole Japanese garden school, are they doing training? Because these gardens, you can't just plant them. To keep a garden looking natural, it has to be expertly pruned over time. I mean, people can give it their best. And if somebody prunes with heart, I appreciate that more than the best pruner. But it'd be great if people could have good training and heart. Those two together create a garden that, you know, people just look at and they're just, they go into another world, really. Yeah. That's great. Well, the story that you told where you're literally picking these tiny little pine needles, one square foot at a time out of this stream. It was, I just read that that and I just kind of sat there. Yeah, I just kind of sat there looking at it going, okay, you know, when I open up my pondless stream in the spring, the landscape company comes over, they blow the leaves out, they maybe get out the power washer, or I do, but it's definitely not to that level of detail. Yeah, you know, you wouldn't do it everywhere. Sometimes the backdrop is attended to less than the focal areas, you know, that's pruned a little more messy, a little more wild, and then as you get near the focal area of the garden that you want people's attention to be drawn to, you prune it in more detail and yeah, you still, you rake it and you might blow it, but you pick up the last few needles by hand, just like we dust a special painting in our house. When you do that, oh my gosh, the eye just, it just goes to it. I pruned a pine once at my sailing club. I used this little pine as an exercise for people trying to learn pine pruning. It's only four feet tall, but we spent three hours on it, three of us, really cleaning. And I kept having to go back over my friend's work and go, no, there's a dead needle there. And there's another one there. And they were like, oh, come on. And I'm like, no, I can see it. And pulling those off, but still perfectly natural looking as if the wind had blown it and it had scented itself. And it had to be small because it was in an area where people were going back and forth. So it made sense to keep it four feet tall. I picked up all the cigarette butts underneath the pine and swept up underneath And then the next week, we were just hanging out at the club, and there was a a couple uh, who volunteer a lot. We take people at my sailing, Cal Sailing Club, we take them out on the bay once a month, the public. And this couple, they volunteer every single month, this older couple, and who have grandkids and don't have a lot of time, but they're always there. And she, she was just sitting on the steps, and she goes, you know, 
I've been here at this club a long time, and I have never noticed that pine before, but it did just look so beautiful this week. And I was just, ka-ching! <laughs> hmm. That's it. She couldn't tell three people had spent three hours on it, but it shined. And someone really, it gave someone a little comfort. It was a perfect example of this natural aesthetic pruning that the Japanese do. No question. That's a great story. Now I have to ask because I work with student gardeners and I'll talk to them mm. all the time about getting tired eyes in the garden. So I'll usually have them work with me in 15-minute increments. So they'll work for 15 minutes, and then I'll have some another uh, group, a pair, come in, and then they'll work in the same spot for 15 minutes. But by having different sets of eyes come in, you know, they may spot something that the previous group missed. Is that something that they do in Japan uh, in the gardens that they have kind of a double check or another set of eyes come in and see things that you just maybe don't see because your eyes are tired? I love that you do that because it's this sense of attentiveness. Well, I will say these people, you know, when you've been pruning 15, 30 years, you can see a little dead branch. You know, you just see it. And that's where the training, just like in your classes, you just have to put the time in and do it again and again and have someone else who's more experienced either point it out or, as you did very cleverly, you had them just notice it because there's two sets of people and they keep finding something new. So it was kind of, it's kind of a Japanese way of teaching, Jennifer. <laughs> Because you don't tell them, wrong, you know, that's wrong, you should do it over. You get them to figure it out. Hmm. I think that's very clever. Well, there you go. I might just try that in my class. I'm going to try that. (laughs) Well, and I always say when you're working with kids, you've got to keep their attention. And so I'll set my Apple Watch. I'm, I'm a big fan of using tech in the garden, but I always set my Apple Watch and I'll say, uh, set an alarm every 15 minutes and then that's my reminder. I'm working side by side with them, but it's like, okay, we're going to change jobs. Yeah. Let's go and we'll change jobs because it's very difficult sometimes to accomplish something in 15 minutes, but yet they learn to be uh-huh. quicker and the task fatigue that you can get, you know, if you're just doing wow. it over and over and over without end, you know, I always tell people, it's like, you know, everybody wants to have kids come and work in their garden. They'll say, oh, I wish I could find a kid to come and weed for me, right? But what kid mm-hmm. wants to come and weed for you for four or five yeah. hours? And, and of course, you're going to be, you know, giving them dirty looks if they're on their phone or you're going to, you know, and so I'll say, oh my gosh, yes, we're, we're not going to do that. Yes, we will weed but you'll have a 15 minutes of weeding and then we'll go work on something else and and it just breaks it up and they like coming Mm. so it makes a difference but that's very interesting it's a Japanese way of doing things so or at least it aligns with it anyway well yeah I love that you're a mentor in the garden and particularly that you're teaching children you know which I think is a little harder to figure out how to do and you've come up with these very unique ways. I like to sketch and sometimes I just have kids sketch things. It kind of trains them a little to start being attentive in a fun way. 
definitely cleaning pebbles. <laughs> Kids love to do the cleaning out of the pebbles with water. <laughs> <laughs> McAtee would love that spirit. Yes, he would. Even though this was not an easy experience for you by any stretch of the imagination, it certainly created lots of room for self-reflection. You had a lot of quiet time while you were toiling away. And you gave a beautiful account of one of your observations. And I thought it would be great if you'd share it with us. It's on page 130 and 131. I just want to sit back and listen to you read that section. I loved it. Yeah, this was a temple garden we were working in, which I think is a really appropriate place to learn the lesson that I was taught that day. It was a particularly onerous job that I was watching being performed where somebody was pruning a really thorny lemon tree. And I was just... Uh, amazed that my young co-worker, he was bleeding even, kept pruning. Um, so here's what happened. Slowly, the light faded to dusk. I ran debris loads while the men pruned in earnest. Warm, sticky sweat slowly trickled from my scalp down to my face. I didn't stop to dry it off or take time for sips of water, as I would have done in California. I needed to support my team. I jogged to and from the debris pile a bit more slowly than I had earlier in the day, but the bright citrus and busy craftsmen, my vibrant companions, kept me engaged. Nagaji's and Masahiro's voices echoed in the garden. My footsteps pounded down paths that had filled with dark shadows. The birds joined in with their dusk sing song, egging us on to walk the last mile. Owning my own business over the past few years, I realized had allowed my ego to grow too big too fast. I was the boss of a business that had built up fairly quickly making me feel quite proud and independent at an early time in my career. I pruned only small trees and plants and rarely had to weed or get my hands in the dirt. I offered design advice to help the garden develop gracefully and seemed to have a knack for dealing with all kinds of clients. In general, I was paid well, and my clients offered only praise. True, I strive to do the highest quality work for every garden, but most of my clients couldn't tell the difference between good and excellent work. My mentor warned his pruning students to remain humble. In America, you are some of the best pruners. In Japan, you are beginners. I had become like a plant that had been given too much fertilizer. When a plant is overfed, it indeed grows fast. It will burst out with fresh, green, vibrant foliage. But while a heavily fertilized plant will grow big, it tends not to flower. And I must say, 
by coincidence, while I was doing this reading about this garden going to dusk and the birds joining in, I'm looking out at my garden tree with the dead branch on top. And (laughs) right as the light's fading early, there was a bird. There's a bird up there singing his little heart out. (laughs) Joining me in this reading to your listeners. It is just so sweet. Yes, I realized when I was there, I I noticed that when I did a lot of maintenance, I would sometimes grumble, like, why am I here doing maintenance? I'm a pruner. And then I would catch myself. Oh, Leslie, are you too good to do maintenance now? I liked the way in the um, company, everyone switches around jobs. I mean, there are advanced people that are sometimes, you know, they're given more advanced pruning, but it's very common for everyone to chip in with the cleanup. There is a famous garden in Japan um, that what they do every morning is every single person from the CEO to the gift shop person to all the gardeners they clean for, I think, 15 minutes, the garden. And I heard a Japanese craftsman speak recently, and he said, all I ask is for you to go out into your garden just 15 minutes a day. I think he was trying to get us to develop this relationship with the garden and not like avoid it until there's so many weeds. We're like completely overwhelmed. Not treat it like just something to clean and walk away, but to start treating it like there's a relationship. You know, I think having that business, I was starting to get too specialized. Things were going too fast, and I was I was quite young and feeling pretty good about myself. And it was time for me to learn. You know, there I had more to learn, and you know, it wasn't just going to be doing the glory jobs. I'm sure having a family, you know, it's not just all the graduation days that creates that love in the family. So you have to do a little bit of everything. That's great insight. Well, what you're thinking about is a common sentiment for a lot of people who run their own landscaping business. Yeah, um, because you're working alone. You can develop all kinds of stories in your head, but luckily I work in a garden and it does ground you at a certain point, no matter how good things are going, that <laughs> that um, hailstorm's going to come the day that you scheduled work and it's going to be gloriously sunny the day before when you took the day off. Of course. <laughs> Mother Nature will always bring you back into your humble position. <laughs> well said. At the very end of your apprenticeship, speaking of humble, you called a Japanese friend in the States. You were on the verge of walking away, of just walking off. And he said, the Japanese push hardest right at the end. Whereas here in America, the last few days at a job can be the easiest. This was the extra push he said, it just took you by surprise. Was this the insight that spurred you to see things through? I think without the call to that friend, I might have walked off 
walked out of the company a day or two before I had planned to leave my last few days. Um, I had a, a new boss the last week or so of my stay with the company, and he was really pushing me hard. And this guy, I thought maybe he had a vendetta against Americans. And when that got into my head, I couldn't drop it because I was already so tired. So my friend Ichiro, who has worked in both American companies and Japanese companies and has Japanese parents and was raised in New Jersey, so he has a great cultural mixed background. I called him up and thank goodness he picked up that phone. Um, It was extremely early in the morning, but he knows how to sacrifice as a friend being a Japanese-American friend, (laughs) and he picked it up, and, you know, I just had to cry for a while, and he just listened to me. He has a lot of sisters and a mom, and he he knows how to deal with these women, (laughs) and then after I put it all out, he's, you know, what's going on? And I said how this guy was just like really being mean and having me do these really hard things that it seemed so unreasonable and did he hate me? And he was like, Leslie, Japanese push hardest at the end. And I had gotten a lot of advice. I talked to many people about what it was going to be like there, but no one had told me this. And once I thought about it, I thought, you know, that could be what's going on. And he said, Leslie, whatever you do when you leave the company, however you are and what you know, it represents them. So they want you to know everything they can teach you. And like, this is the last week. And, you know, and this is a, it was a famous company that I worked in, a historic company in Japan. You know, they wanted you to be challenged. And it's not a meanness. It's also not, you know, they didn't want people to see you as weak or something. Japanese, the craft of gardening in Japan, it's one of the last cultural crafts that's still practiced that's very physical. It's an extremely physical craft. And I think they wanted to toughen me up. Because they knew how hard it was going to be back in the States, how much physical effort I would have to give, how we know as gardeners, when you're out there, it's like the weather elements are always testing you. And they didn't want me to give up. So they were teaching me how to have a hard day, but still hang in there. As it turned out, they taught me a very good lesson. Yes, they did. At the end of the story, you say that you got done talking to this gentleman. He helped you kind of process it. And you recalled this question from your mentor. And to me, it kind of relates back to that gambate, don't give up. He said, do you understand the word gamma? Yeah, my teacher described gamma is this feeling that you're, you almost can't keep going, but you do. Like, it's just whatever it is, it's so awful that you feel like you can't go on, but you do. And there's a word for it in Japanese. It's just incredible. And of course, it's what people admired the Japanese for after the war. 
And during the last tsunami, they mentioned, oh, these people, they just like pick up the pieces and go. They're not just spending, you know, hours and hours like, oh, poor me, it's so terrible. They just, it's goma. It's this word. At the time when he told me about it, it sounded, oh, that sounds so cool, like struggle, and then you keep going. <laughs> but um, there I was, like, I was crying so much, I couldn't stop crying. And I thought, I'm going to have to call my friend just so that I can stop crying here, because this has obviously really gotten to me, and I'm thinking of quitting. And and then he talks to me, and, and I realized, you know, I'm going to go back. It finally hit me. Okay. I was still, it took me a little while to admit it, but I knew inside I was going to return to work. And I was like, I think this is what, I mean, I can't imagine what it's like to live through the end of a war or there's things harder than that. But I think I got a taste for Gamma, you know, feeling like giving up, but you keep going. I sometimes think like it's at our darkest hour, you know, the darkest times in our lives that we get the biggest insights. And because I went back, you know, I was able to get even more special insights. No question. Well, I wanted to end our time together with this very serendipitous story that you share at the end of your book. You asked a Japanese gardener one time what his inspiration was, and he said, sometimes I tell the tree about my day or about troubles at home. Sometimes I tell the tree, I'm going to make you as pretty as my wife. And his advice reminded you that you really weren't alone in the garden, that the trees and the plants were alive. They were with you there. And incredibly, you encountered someone else who was willing to talk to trees while you were working. And I was almost in complete disbelief and shock when I read this. I I shared this with my mom the other day. I was like, can you believe this? This is an incredible part of your story, I think. Yes, I was doing volunteer pruning at Tafahara. I'd been at it for a couple days. And it is kind of interesting. I like the way... You can visit Tafahara, you know, you could just go and experience nature. And that's kind of what this story is about, is, you know, deciding how we want to see nature. Um, So here's what happened. I was busily pruning a California native shade garden at Tafahara, designed by a local landscaper ecologist, when a beautiful older woman with cropped hair walked out of her cabin nearby. I recognized her immediately. My mom listened to her records in the late 60s. I still listen to Joan Baez's enchanting album, Diamonds in Rust, on my turntable. I'd seen Joan on and off for days at Tassahara, singing with visitors, dancing with members of local Native American tribes, graciously saying hello to anyone who approached her. I tried to act normal as she approached, even though I could barely breathe. When she saw me, she asked kindly, What are you doing? I answered, pruning the shrubs around your cabin. (laughs) 
I was at work on some plants at the entrance to her cabin. A gurgling stream ran along the back for both of us to hear as we talked. What's wrong with this one? She pointed to a half-dead, medium-sized tree that, when healthy, would bloom in spring with hundreds of tiny blue flowers. It's commonly known as a California lilac, I said in a robotic way, because I'd worked with this plant for years and also because I could hardly speak with someone I admired so much in front of me. Scientifically, it's known as Ceanothus thersifolius. Ceanothus is not long-lived, and this one looks fairly old. I think it's dying simply from age. I kept going. I could either cut it down, as not much will be left after I remove this dead branch, or I could just remove the dead wood and give the remaining small living section just a little more time. Baez listened quietly. This encouraged me to go on. Seeing as you are staying in this cabin, I offered, gathering what remains of my breath, why don't you decide? She looked at the shrub a while, touching it, peering into its canopy like a proper aesthetic pruner might do. She then turned back to me. She said, the shrub is telling me it wants to stay for now. I didn't realize anyone else got specific information from the trees. I felt a little taken aback. Should I believe her? My talking to trees skeptic wondered. How can any of us know what a plant wants? Do these responses come from our own minds or from somewhere else? But I thought, if Joan Baez says the tree wants to hang out a while longer, then I'm going to let it be. She then asked me graciously if I could teach her to prune, so I gave her a simple lesson on how to cut at the intersections of branches to get the most natural look. I wasn't sure who was teaching whom. Finally, she walked on, and I got back to work on the shade garden. That was tremendous. Mm -hmm. Well, and I love what you say here at the end about the lessons that you learned you said, I've become more interested in finding new challenges than achieving success. And the person that you've grown accustomed to relying on for approval was yourself. I wrote that? Really? <laughs> oh <my laughs> yes, God. you did. You did. And I was like, so, oh my gosh, that's wow. fantastic. I need to put that <laughs> on my mirror and read it in the morning when I'm getting ready for the day. So I just wow. thought it was when great. When I write, wow, this voice comes out of me when I write. And sometimes I forget my own sentences. Thank you for reminding me of that one. You'll be like seeing it with fresh eyes mm -hmm. today. But it's um it's on the bottom of page 272 and the top of page 273. You were talking oh. about <laughs> Nakaji. You said, for months, Nakaji had complimented mm -hmm. me by giving me successively more difficult projects every day. <laughs> 
I failed so often because as soon as I figured one thing out, he'd give me something more difficult to learn. That's your reward. Mm -hmm. You know, that was your reward. I always tell the boys when they're in basketball, I'm like, you know, your reward for winning this game is playing a more difficult team, right? You know, and that's essentially what you were doing. You were just upping the difficulty level at every turn. He had faith in my ability to learn and I'd become more interested in finding new challenges than achieving success. Mm. Yeah, I just thought it was great. I love that. Yeah, it's cool how this this guy who was 70 was teaching me so much and we never spoke a word to each other that we could understand. Well, Leslie, uh, this has been just so fun for me. I mean, talk about a dream come true to read about somebody in the newspaper and then say, boy, I would really love to chat with her. And then this actually gets to happen. So what a what a tremendous opportunity for me today mm-hmm. and for listeners everywhere to get a chance to hear you, hear your voice and all the wonderful Japanese words and the customs and the culture that you've shared with us today. It's just been tremendous. Mm-hmm. Timber Press is going to be giving a listener a copy of your book, which is just so generous. But also you've created something on your own. Yeah, um, I made these bookmarks, these hand-sketched bookmarks at different gardens I've visited including Anderson Japanese Garden and there's Monet's Garden I just visited in France this summer. And people can order those if they want me to sign them so they have a signed book or they can just order them for fun. But I'd love to give away the set of six to a listener of your choice. And I just wanted to take a moment to thank you for being like a mentor in spirit to so many gardeners and to really doing what the Japanese respect, which is you are teaching people hands-on, like real information they can use and go out in the garden and do. And I love, I love listening to your podcast. I, I love hearing from the other people you interview, and I'm sure your listeners just have so much knowledge. I have a Facebook page under Leslie Buck, and very active with that. I just, I love doing nature posts, and I love seeing what other people are doing. I have an Instagram, um, Leslie Buck Author is my Instagram. I didn't think I would like social media as much as I do. (laughs) I always said, you know, oh, I'd rather talk to my friends in person to my younger nephew, but I'm inspired. I'm inspired by people's photos. Well, and it's so great because you're in the Still Growing podcast group too. So for listeners who have questions about your book or something they heard on this episode, they can definitely reach out and talk to you there and ask questions. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And I, on my website, there's a photo diary. There is a link to a video about pruning I did for the California Native Plant Society. Um, And I teach classes. So there's a link to, you know, what kind of classes I can teach. And so there's a lot on that website if people are interested in more than the book. 
Yeah. And you do a lot of speaking too, because I noticed, uh, let's see, I was checking out some of your speaking gigs and I think, was it just Mm -hmm. this past, right before Thanksgiving, you gave a presentation, I think on the gardens of Kyoto, was that it? And then you gave like a slideshow and stuff. So it it looks like you Mm -hmm. do a lot of different types of work, speaking and presenting. Yeah, I did that in Portland. I love talking about this. So Anytime, if different groups can get together and cluster me in a certain region of the world and get me out there, I'm so happy. I would love to do more North and um, New York. So you can see this the subject, you know, what are authentic Japanese gardens and who are the craftspeople taking care of them is just a subject that you can go on and on. It's a little bit misunderstood in the United States and it's starting to get out there. So it's an amazing subject to talk about, especially that people are more interested in native plants right now. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and that, I guess, actually, I was a little surprised by as well, because it wasn't something that I thought would come up reading your book, this whole topic of mm-hmm. natives, uh, native plantings. I, it just never even occurred to me. So yeah. I, I see Japanese gardens a little bit differently now. My, my framework is changing thanks to your book and thanks to this conversation. Oh. Yeah, my cousin was walking with a friend in a Texas Japanese garden, and her friend said, you know, there's a lot of native Texan plants in this garden. I wonder why they use those. And my cousin said, well, that is actually very appropriate in a Japanese (laughs) garden, and proceeded to lecture her. (laughs) Go, cousin. I was like, right on. Yes, yes. Yes. Well, that's fantastic. Well, and now the United States has you as a resource too, to help spread the word about it. So I'm sure your book is triggering a lot of conversation around all of these topics, which which are so great. Well, Leslie, I, I thank you so much for your time today. This was wonderful. Anytime. And same, same goes for continued listening to your amazing podcasts, which I have just discovered Garden Podcasts. Yay. They're they're a good thing. Yay. Oh, it's just so fun. Do it while I'm doing dishes, while I'm gardening. It's keeping me company. Yep. So sweet. Mission accomplished. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Leslie. (laughs) Okay. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. Well, that's it for our show today featuring Leslie Buck, the author of Cutting Back, My Apprenticeship in the Gardens of Kyoto. I hope today's show helped you start thinking about drawing out the natural beauty in your own garden, as well as a desire to work a little harder on your focal points or the special plants or features of your garden. Just a reminder that the show notes for this episode will be under the Still Growing podcast page over at my website at sixfootmama.com. That's the number six, F-T-M-A-M-A.com. Just click on the podcast page and you'll have access to all of the shows. I'm so thankful to my team over at Podfly Productions. I want to thank my editor, Eric Begay, and my copywriter, Ein Kadena. I'd also like to thank the members who make up my listener advisory board, Beth Engel, 
Beth Gardens in Illinois. She works at Griffin, a national brokerage firm and one of the finest companies in horticultural service. Beth is also a member of the PPA, the Perennial Plant Association. Denise Pugh, Denise Gardens in North Mississippi and is a contributing writer to Mississippi Gardener Magazine. Amy Von Atchen, Patricia Chandler-Newport. Patricia is the owner of Backyard Urban Gardens out of Kego Harbor, Michigan. Deb Gibson and Peggy Ann Montgomery. Peggy Ann is the brand manager over at American Beauty's Native Plants. And she joined me back in episode 553, where we talked all about incorporating more native plants into your landscape. For my sign-off today, I leave you with this thought to help you grow. Spend some time in the natural environment of neighboring parks and forests and see if you can't find some inspiration to draw out the natural beauty in your garden, even if that means showing off a dead branch. Have a great week, everyone. Still Growing with Jennifer Ebling is a SixFootMama.com production made in lovely Maple Grove, Minnesota. Still Growing is a weekly gardening podcast dedicated to helping you and your garden grow. Past guest Jen McGinnis of the blog Frau Zinni shared an update, shared a nut in sustain. In sustainability, beep, beep. Kathy Martin. Whoops. Beep, beep. In listener Kathy Martinolik had wrote into the listener community. Beep, beep. In continuing ed, Nikki Kyle Garden. Beep, beep. But if you're looking for that pop of color and you don't have a lot of spring bulbs yet or those grow baskets that you can buy at the grocery store at the nursery, you can go out into your yard, out into your. In the news segment this week, the Yale 360. In the news this week, the Yale 360 article. In the news this week, the Yale 360 newspaper or online. Also in science, there was an interesting. The more current that the episodes. The more current episodes, especially. But I really, 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 but I really, really want one. Each tree should have the same cared for. (laughs) Okay, here we go. Long life. He said, nothing is more miserable for the gardener or uglier in the landscape than a garden laid out with. Okay, I got to do that again. We shouldn't be trying to re-keep, which is to be enjoyed and loved. Somebody just won their Xbox game. And I was unimpressed without how, and I was unimpressed without, and I was unimpressed with how long. Now, there's a point in the interview where, there's a point in the interview where Leslie and I talk about how to make a garden shine. Leslie says, a garden, it has to be loved. As a pruner, I know how to look at a plant and say, here are the problems. But sometimes I have to look back. But sometimes I have to step back and say, hey, what's for supper? Beep, beep.